Welcome to Please Bet on Football Games. Welcome to another edition of the Please Bet on Football Games podcast, where love us or hate us, we sure as hell hope that you participate in the market. Because if you love us, you'll make a little bit of money. And if you hate us, you'll make our lines even softer. This is our final podcast before the 2021 NFL regular season finally gets underway. So things are going to be a little bit different. We're done talking about preseason tape. Thank Christ for that. Instead, we're going to actually talk about how we're going to look to make money this regular season. Let me kick it over to my co-host, Alex. What do we got on deck for today? Well, happy to be back. Uh, looking forward to talking some football again with you here, Joe. So first of all, we're going to get into some of the QB decisions that came down this week. Some starters got announced. Um, and then after that, we're going to jump into a segment we're calling Gas or Fade, which is either we're gassing teams, we're jumping on them, looking to bet on them throughout the year, or we're fading them and looking to bet against them throughout the year. So this isn't just for week one, but for the season as a whole. It's not quite going to be just season win totals. Season win totals are great, especially if you find one that's a killer. But I don't know about you. I don't like tying up entire units in a bet that I can't be paid out on until December, especially when I can have actionable bets on them every single week until then. Yeah, definitely. I always struggle with that because you can normally find such great value on the season long bets that you get tempted to go tie up a big chunk of money into a bet that you won't get paid out on until January. Um, and so then, yeah, it goes to instead, why don't I just make bets every single week against them and get paid out throughout? Exactly. And patience is a great virtue. But when without further ado, let's quit bitching about our finances and get into the segments. All right. So with our first segment talking about QB decisions, there was a little bit of a shakeup in New England this week. So I'll kick it over to you, Joe. What do you think about Mac Jones announced as a starter and Cam Newton released? Yeah, so now we know who will start the game. I guess the question is who should, right? And this is a rare take for me, but I actually agree with Bill Belichick here. I think that starting Mac was the right decision. I don't know about cutting Cam. That's a lot of, there's a lot of political things going on behind the scenes. And no, I don't mean vaccination status. No, I don't mean Bill Belichick is KKK. I just mean Cam Newton holds a lot of cachet in a locker room. There's a lot of things that could be affecting this decision. You don't want to have a former MVP who everybody adores breathing down the neck of this rookie quarterback who's starting week one. So I, you know, I'm not going to get into whether or not Cam deserves to be on the team or not. That's completely irrelevant to this analysis because we can't make any money on it. What we can do is evaluate who the better quarterback is. And before training camp even started, I had Mac as a slightly better option than Cam Newton. I think Cam Newton is a good backup at this stage. And I think Mac Jones could be a below average starter. His ceiling is ridiculously low. I, I, I like to say that Mac Jones transcends nothing. That's my, that's my tagline for his evaluation. But you know Mac Jones isn't going to do incredibly boneheaded things. You know he's generally going to understand how the offense is supposed to flow. And while you're going to be limited to schemed up separation to lots of screens and short throws with an occasional deep ball, and while it's going to be tough to attack the intermediate area of the field, you can have something that resembles a regular NFL offense with Mac. And I think that's the Patriots' best chance of maximizing their season. How about you? Yeah, I agree with you. I I thought obviously when Cam got released initially, I had that knee jerk reaction of wow, like that's that's crazy. 
Um, he was playing really well in the preseason. He's, you know, everyone's doubting him as coming back, you know, an actual offseason with him. And Mac Jones is a rookie. That's looked good, but it hasn't looked exceptional. Um, but when you do bring in the locker room stuff of it would be tough to have Cam Newton sitting there, their expectations are pretty high and are probably much higher than should be realistic for them as it is. So when they start underperforming that, people are going to, you know, Cam was still there. There would be a lot of people saying, bring Cam in. And then you'd start getting into that, you know, that situation that I saw all too much growing up with Cleveland Browns of drafting a young guy that probably isn't it, but you make sure he's not it when you ruin him by bringing in, you know, sapping his confidence and pulling him and putting him back in and all that. So I think it end up, ends up being the right decision. Um, but I agree with you in that your offense is very limited with Mac. Um, honestly, I think Belichick saw what Brian Flores did with the Dolphins last year and is somewhat trying to recreate that of I can just play this short game of just little dinks and dunks screens, get it into speed and just let guys go and work with occasional deep balls. And then other than that, let your defense go and shut games down. Um, so I think that's more of what he's going with. And Mac is definitely, I think, is likely to be a safer player than Cam is um, because Mac at least knows his limitations and really stays within them. Whereas I think Cam still tries to do a little bit of 2015 Cam. But overall, I think it ends up being a good decision for them, um, though they'll still struggle this year and underperform what expectations are. Yeah, and I think that you bring up a great point citing the Dolphins of last year because we all saw what happened when Tua came in was the dumpster fire that we knew Tua would be. And then you have Ryan Fitzpatrick a capable veteran starter who people love breathing down his neck. And then you have things like the Raiders game where halfway through the game, you're pulling your rookie quarterback, you know, causing immeasurable head fuck for these apparently fragile quarterbacks in the NFL these days. And I don't think Belichick wants to, wants to make that mistake again by having Cam who is so popular in the locker room and so popular with so many fans standing on the sideline with a, with a frown on his face while the Patriots lose week four to Tampa Bay and everybody's saying, well, why don't you try Cam? Can't go worse. So I, I agree with Belichick's decision, though I will say it is risky because hear me out. Now, I'm a Belichick truther, and by truther, I mean I think that the dude is mids and just having to stumble into Tom Brady, and that's a discussion for another day. But I believe that if you are Bill Belichick and you are trying to preserve your legacy, the safer move, the maybe the smarter move, if you're trying to artificially inflate people's opinion of you, is to start Cam because – Nobody's ever going to blame you for starting the former MVP, the veteran, who you're paying about $8 million to. They're going to say, that's, that's a rational. Who wouldn't do that, right? And if he fails, you can say, oh, Cam just doesn't have it. The injuries caught up, the age caught up, the attitude problems caught up. And no, I'm not saying Cam's a bad guy, but I'm saying he might have a hard time focusing. So you have your automatic built-in excuse. And then when you eventually come to a, a crossing where you say, okay, Cam just really can't hack it, you then have the option of bringing in Mac Jones with lowered expectations because your fan base is already sitting there thinking, okay, Cam was terrible. So our, our expectations for Mac Jones are just be like Cam was or maybe a little bit better. And so God forbid he has a great day, throws for 300 yards. Everybody is just so excited clapping it up. But on the other side, God forbid he has a game where he throws for 100 yards on 25 attempts and two picks. People are going to say, well, Maybe it's something with the team because, look, Cam couldn't do anything either. So give Mac Jones time. He's young. So this play is really pushing your chips into the center and banking on your team being good. You're banking on the team being pretty good. You're banking on your coaching being effective. And you're banking on Mac Jones not floundering. I would do it, but I also would imagine that I'm a good coach and I wouldn't be so concerned with my legacy, as we know Belichick is. But 
I think we're reaching the point where we are trying to get into talking about the Patriots. Before we do that, why don't we head over to the other quarterback decision that people are talking about? Yeah, so jumping in, we had another starter announced from a veteran versus rookie battle over in Chicago. So tell me what you think about Andy Dalton, the veteran, getting the nod in this situation and Justin Fields sitting behind him. In a rare turn of events, I actually agree with both of the moves that NFL head coaches made. (laughs) On Twitter, you may have seen a lot of my tweets saying that if these people weren't coaching NFL teams, they'd probably be teaching middle school gym and not particularly well. But in in this case, I think we're dealing with two coaches who made the right decision. And I think we're dealing with two coaches who are at least moderately intelligent for NFL head coaches. Now, this you may be asking yourself, how is that possible? Belichick went chips in with the exciting young rookie I guess exciting being a relative term in this case, because Mac Jones isn't quite going to set your panties on fire, but it's a little bit more exciting than trotting out an ancient Cam Newton. Uh, I think that the difference is that Andy Dalton is probably the best quarterback that Matt Nagy's ever called plays for. And I don't think Justin Fields is nearly as ready for the NFL as Mac Jones, nor do I think he is right now as good. So first of all, Matt Nagy has really gotten the shit end of the stick when it comes to the quarterbacks he's dealing with. Uh, He starts off in Kansas City with Alex Smith, and yes, he has the one game with Patrick Mahomes against Denver Week 17, but Patrick Mahomes was a rookie. It was Denver in the winter, and Patrick Mahomes still put up great numbers. It was a very productive game, but eh, it it shouldn't really count. Instead, he was dealing with Alex Smith for most of the year and turned Alex Smith, who we know to be just the very embodiment of six and 10 football into an MVP candidate. I think he was the runner up to Carson Wentz that year. Uh, It might have been the run. No, he was the runner up to Tom Brady and he was third behind Carson Wentz before the injury. The debate about Alex Smith should be, is this man a starting quarterback and never is this man the best player in the entire fucking league. So Matt Nagy did some magic there. Then he comes to Chicago and he gets stuck with Mitch Trubisky, who is just the perfect concoction to absolutely hamstring any offense because he's inaccurate. He is not intelligent. And again, we're just talking football intelligence here. I don't give two shits if Mitch Trubisky aces every spelling test he ever takes and knows a whole hell of a lot about cooking. It doesn't matter to me. We're just talking about what he shows on the football field. And Mitch Trubisky did not understand offenses. He routinely made basic mistakes in aligning protections and recognizing routes. He doesn't process fast. He's not accurate, and he refused to run after his rookie year, seemingly for fear of getting hurt. Like he, he went from 500 rushing yards his first year with Nagy to running out of bounds on fourth down short of the sticks because he's afraid of taking a hit. I don't know what happened there, but that what can you do with a quarterback that can't pass or run or think? You can do what Matt Nagy did, and that's just pray. <laughs> so they bring in Nick Foles as the replacement, and this is the Nick Foles that got run out of Jacksonville got replaced with Gardner Minshew because he was so old, his arm had deteriorated so poorly, and he just, he had nothing left. It was apparent in Jacksonville. I said when they brought him in, great, this is a different version of suck. This isn't helping at all. Andy Dalton, on the other hand, while he isn't quite what he used to be and what he used to be wasn't quite impressive, he's competent. He knows what he's doing. He's fairly accurate, if not as accurate as some people like to think of him. And He's not mobile. Let's not get that idea in our heads. But he's at least creative. He doesn't give up on plays. If there's not something there, he can occasionally try to make something out of nothing, which is so much more than Nick Foles could say. All of this to say, I think that Dalton will 
maximize Matt Nagy's offense compared to what we've seen, which is a very low bar. Yeah, I'm going to echo that. And then I think the Bears made the right decision. Um, and even though they picked the veteran over the rookie, I think they actually made a really similar to decision to the Patriots in that they went with the, you know, safer option in terms of players where both Cam and Fields are much more exciting and they offer you more versatility in the type of game you can call. They both have, you know, stronger arms. They can run around. Um but they're a lot more volatile, whereas both Mac and Andy Dalton, you know what you're getting from them. Um, and Nagy, at this point, I think he's, one, coaching a little scared, um, but he's saying, give me the system. I know what I'm going to get from it compared to the chaos of the last few years where he's had to deal with Trubisky, where he doesn't know what he's going to do on any given play. But going into that, Dalton himself, and why I think it is the right decision for the team, is that they're really good playmakers on the Bears. And Dalton doesn't have to do anything special. He just has to get him the ball. And echoing what you said regarding the best quarterback that Nagy has had, I don't know if Dalton today is the best quarterback he's had because I think Alex Smith was at least a similar, maybe a little bit better because he was more mobile at that point. Um, but they're of similar realm. I'll give you that and that this is definitely the best quarterback Nagy has had in Chicago by a mile. So that will that will give him a, a big advantage in being able to open up the playbook and have some consistency in what he can call and get some rhythm to his offense. So I think that's the thing they've been missing the most the last few years. They just never develop any rhythm because Trubisky might go and have an awesome series, but then the next one he's running backwards and throwing it across his body into double coverage or completely missing reads. So I think Dalton just gives them the safer option where they can utilize their playmakers and have a consistency to the offense that will greatly benefit Nagy and help their defense out. Meanwhile, I think that Justin Fields has some real limitations. In prior podcasts, we've talked about how he's late to process, and that was a problem in college that seemed to also show up while facing backups in preseason. For some reason, I'm skeptical that that would go away when he starts facing starters with more complex offensive plays. You also saw three times in the preseason that he altered his protections, causing him to either get a substantial pressure or against the Bills in the play that everybody's seen. He caused himself to get absolutely fucking lit up. He shifted his protection away from the free rusher coming off of the overhanged edge, and he ate that hit without even looking at it. You don't want to get the kid injured because he doesn't know how to organize a protection yet which is not something he had to do at Ohio State with their amazing offensive line and just generally simplified offense. You don't want Justin Fields to sit back there and eat sacks behind a questionable offensive line because he can't process quick enough. You don't want to ruin his confidence by putting him out there before he's ready. And frankly, when you're on the hot seat like Mac Nagy, you want to win some games, build some cachet. And I think Andy Dalton gives him the best shot. So in both cases, I think that New England and Chicago are playing the quarterback who gives them the best shot, regardless of if it's the rookie or the starter. What's your take on the field controversy? Twitter tells me that I'm wrong because he had that one really cool highlight throw in the preseason against Tennessee. Yeah, so I agree with you on the most part. I think you're a little harsher on fields than I am. Although I've said from the beginning, he the, the Mahomes path is the perfect path for him. I think Chicago recognized that and set the team up very well to do that. Um, but that's definitely the route that I think they should go with because Fields, he really didn't have to make any reads at Ohio State. And the ones he did make, he was slow and off on. And those same issues, exactly like you talked about, have come through in the preseason as well. Even though he made really exciting plays and he showed that he has a crazy strong arm and can run around and make, you know, explosive game-changing plays, he can do it the opposite way as well. And he's setting himself up 
to get hurt, like you mentioned with the issues of calling protections. And that's just going to ruin him going forward. Let him sit on the bench, see what the offense can do with some stability and the the averageness that is Dalton uh, compared to another year of chaos and hoping a young guy with athletic traits can go turn it out for you. Yeah, I think we agree that both of these teams are probably doing what's best for them, both in the short term and in the long term, going with safer quarterbacks who also afford him a better chance to win right now, probably. And whenever we have quarterbacks being changed, it changes team ratings. And that chaos allows us to get bets. So let's finally do what this whole podcast is supposed to be about. Let's get some angles, make some bets, find out how we're going to make money this year. All right, with that, we're going to jump into a segment we like to call Gas and Fade. So every year when we look at teams to start the season, we both make our own rankings, compare, see what each other is thinking. And then we go look at some of the national rankings. We go pull up ESPN, CBS, look at some of the big power rankings we're seeing around the league and see where we differ. And, you know, for the most part, we're normally in the same ballpark. However, there are always a few that we either like a lot more or a lot less. And so on the teams that we like a lot more, we like to gas them. Those are teams that we're looking for throughout the year, not just the first week, that we're looking to bet on them. We're looking at spreads, money lines that could be valuable to us um, because we're higher on them than the rest of the public. And then on the other side, there are teams that we want to fade. These are teams that we like less than the general public and think are going to underperform expectations. So we're looking throughout the season to go and find lines and bet on teams that they're playing. Yeah. And I think it's really important to note that first of all, this is, this is basically what betting on football games is about. It's not about finding the best team and just betting on them. You're not going to make any fucking money. The whole point of spread betting, which is the way that you really make money because they just kill you on those money lines. The whole point of betting against spreads is figuring out what the market's evaluation of a team is. And if a team's overrated, you bet the fuck against them when you can. And if a team's underrated, you bet on them every time you can, especially if an underrated team is playing an overrated team. But so like Alex and I are big fans of the Browns. Alex, because that's where he's from. Me, because Baker Mayfield is my Lord and Savior. But unfortunate for us, we never really got a great chance to bet on the Browns, even though we saw them becoming great three or four years ago when they originally got Baker. The reason is, I don't know if you've watched ESPN in the last year and a half, but people seem to talk about the Browns a little bit. They they seem to be hot in the streets. So there's no advantage. We don't know anything that nobody else is missing. Similarly, you're not going to make a ton of money betting on the Chiefs. People know they're good. And you're not going to make a ton of money betting against the Jaguars. People know they suck. It's about finding those those teams in the middle that people are sleeping on a little bit too much or are a little too high on. We've put together a spreadsheet with how we rank teams, the implied Vegas power rankings from season win totals and spreads throughout the season. We have ESPN's post-draft power rankings. And I also incorporate the power ranking of some of the people who I respect that create football betting media. Alex and I then put together our power rankings and I have a little algorithm that I toy with as well, which almost always exactly mirrors my eventual power ratings. And we've highlighted some teams that are a little bit disparate. I know we've talked about this before. Uh, our first bet of the year, 
but with a little shakeup on them, I figure we revisit. So talk to me a little bit about the New Orleans Saints and revitalize Jameis Winston. Yeah, we talked about it at the very end of last podcast, but I really love the value on the Saints right now. There's a large national narrative with Drew Brees retiring that all of the Saints salary cap manipulation finally caught up with them and they're finally in cap hell. They lost a bunch of players and they lost their star quarterback and they're going to stink now. Well, this team was fairly dominant last year. They gave the Super Bowl champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers a real hard time three times. They beat the crap out of them twice in the regular season. And honestly, the Saints were a little unlucky to get beaten in the postseason by the Buccaneers. So when I look at the Saints, I see four reasons that all of this pessimism is overblown. First of all, their quarterback, I think they upgraded. Jameis Winston in 2021 is better than Drew Brees was in 2020 and probably is better than Drew Brees was in 2019. And you can save all of your stats, all of your, I know that Drew Brees put together a great QBR despite having a limp, extremely soggy noodle for an arm last year. That's not where you thought I was going, is it? But a lot of those stats, a lot of that efficiency is predicated by Sean Payton being a verified genius. Sean Payton can put together offense no matter who his quarterback is, as evidenced by the fact that he's, what, 8-1 and one in the last two years with quarterbacks not named Drew Brees. And these aren't like special backups. These are Teddy Bridgewater in his first games after a catastrophic knee injury and Taysom Hill who's kind of like if Lamar Jackson was running with two sprained ankles. He wasn't working with stud backups, and he was beating legitimately good teams. Why is that? Because the Saints offense is extremely creative. It gets playmakers in space. They don't need special wide receivers. They just need people who can move with the ball in their hands, like Alvin Kamara. And Sean Payton will leverage that and his incredible offensive line to move the ball and they'll score 30 points. It doesn't matter who their wide receivers are or who their quarterback is. As long as they are NFL average, they will score 30 points. I think Jameis Winston will be a little better than average, and I don't think their roster is in that bad of shape. So let me stop you there. My, I agree with you that Jameis will be better than he was in Tampa. The high bar. Right, and that's my issue. I agree Sean Payton will be better for him than Bruce Arian. He'll help hide his his flaws a little bit more, but I worry about being this high on New Orleans when the last time we saw Jameis play meaningful football, he threw 30 interceptions. Um, And yes, Sean Payton will help, and that line is really good, but he doesn't have any bailout playmakers that he can just chuck the ball to. He's going to have to make plays consistently without turning the ball over, and that's what has me worried about them. Are you worried about the interceptions? A lot of very smart people are worried about Jameis's interceptions. And my first reaction is, well, he was with the Bruce Arians offense and a defense that year that started off terrible. The first half of that year, their defense was utter trash. So they were coming from behind all the time. Jameis had to sling it downfield, partially because that's what the offense was invented for and partially because that's what the game scenario called for. And that's why he threw 30 picks. But there's a really good counterpoint out there. If you look at his other seasons under offensive coordinators like Dirk Cutter, who's a fairly decent offensive coordinator, he still threw a lot of picks. Now, I think a lot of that is in part due to the fact that when in doubt, Jameis chucked a duck up to Mike Evans, who usually can go get him. But when he doesn't, sometimes somebody else gets him. The the thing that scares me is that Jameis actually did have a propensity in his last year in Tampa for throwing picks to linebackers that are in drop coverages, like a robber or just a middle of field 
spy. And that's not going to be completely mitigated by Sean Payton's scheme because he's still going to have to attack that, you know, one to five yard downfield area a lot. And he's going to use the middle of the field a lot. I'm hoping that you're going to think I'm joking, but I legitimately am hoping that LASIK helps because as somebody who is severely visually impaired, I can't fucking imagine squinting through an NFL football game. And now he doesn't have to do that because Jameis refused to wear contacts or glasses because he's just a quirky ass dude. I think that'll help a little bit legitimately. (laughs) I also think that having a year to learn how to play quarterback from Sean Payton instead of you know, coaches who are a little bit less reputable and his high school football coach who has him dodging large scrotums and whipping towels at dogs. I I think that Sean Payton is a slight upgrade from that and he may have learned something. I also think that if push comes to shove, Sean Payton is going to recognize that he needs to do something about Jameis's turnover proclivities and I trust him to make those decisions and adjustments. So yeah, here's the thing. I think if Jameis could limit his turnovers and really eliminate that recklessness from his game, he would be in the conversation for like a truly elite quarterback, at least as far as production goes in this Saints offense. And I'm not asking for him to do that. I'm asking for him to be a 10 to 15 ranked quarterback, slightly better than like a Joe Burrow. And I think that he's very capable of that. I agree with you. I think he's very capable of that. However, I disagree with you in that it's like an easy fix. It, it not necessarily that you're saying that it is, but in my opinion, that's a huge problem. And yes, Sean Payton's system, he got to sit. And I agree that LASIK will also improve. Like, I mean, I just playing hockey without contacts, beer league, men's league, garbage hockey is hard. I can't imagine NFL football not being able to see as a quarterback nonetheless um so I think all that will help but he he needs to like have his interceptions um to keep it from really affecting the team in my opinion I think that that's a legitimate possibility though because under Dirk Cutter he was throwing a lot of interceptions but by a lot I mean like 14 or 15 which is too many it's it's one a game but that is half of 30. It's yeah, I, that's that's a good point. Um, I think, honestly, if he sat around that number, 14-ish. He did. It, like this year, he came in and threw about 14 picks, assuming it's offset by high 20s touchdowns, which I think is relatively reasonable. Um, then that's a pretty solid season for him. I mean, you would love to see him get down into single digits, but it is Jameis, so we have to be realistic. But you get a 28 and 14 season, you get a nice two to one ratio for him. I think you're you're pumped if you're the Saints. His offensive coordinator for the first few years, first his offensive coordinator, then his head coach was Dirk Cutter. Last year, the offensive coordinator of the Falcons. I think he's a legitimately fine offensive coordinator. His interception counts were 15, 18, 11 and 14. Now, this is a, this is about more than one per game every year, but something tells me that Sean Payton is going to figure this out slightly better than Dirk Cutter. Something tells me that it's not going to be the Bruce Arians 30 interception season. I, I have a feeling that we will see the best Jameis we've ever seen, and I think that that can be somewhere from 10 to 16 picks, and I think that's yeah. enough. I think it's definitely a very realistic situation, and I think that does make them a better team than they were last year, even though they did lose a little bit. I'm a little worried about that, their secondary. But overall, if Jameis can make them a full offense that can use the entire field, I think it will make a bigger difference than those losses. That is one thing that I forgot to mention that I really like. I talked about how Sean Payton's a genius, but I forgot to mention that 
he was a genius with his hand tied behind his back for the last few years because Drew Brees just couldn't attack. Really, he couldn't attack the deep or intermediate levels of the field. He could attack deep if it was like wide open. And by deep, I mean 20 yards and not much further. But he didn't have the zip to get that middle of field in between the safety and the linebacker area. And now imagine what Sean Payton can do when his quarterback can hit those deep routes, can hit the intermediate routes, and can... I mean, I would hope, can dump it off to Kamara or a screen. The amount of options that Peyton has just tripled in my book, and he was already doing great with just his hand behind his back. Yeah, that's definitely a good point. The offense being fully open will be a huge difference. Um, now, will it be a big enough difference uh, that'll, that'll, that's yet to be seen? I think that the other thing people are talking about with the Saints is that they've had attrition because they've kicked the can down the road so much and now they've lost all these great players, right? You know, you lose a, an edge rusher like Trey Hendrickson, who's really good. I love him. You, you lose a defensive tackle like Malcolm Brown. You lose Janoris Jenkins and their star defensive tackle from last year, David Onyemata, is suspended for six games because he does PEDs. Michael Thomas isn't going to play and Emmanuel Sanders went to Buffalo. But I got counters for all those. So last year, Anyamata, their star defensive tackle, played about 54% of snaps. Malcolm Brown played 33% of snaps. And Sheldon Rankins, who I, they also lost, played about 40% of snaps. Which means that on about 40% of their snaps, one of their three defensive tackles, all of whom were very good, weren't on the field. Why is that? Well, it's because players like Marcus Davenport and Cameron Jordan played three technique a lot. So the way that the Saints typically do this is they're a 4-3 team, but they'll play three down linemen with an overhang linebacker. And effectively, whoever's playing their strong side defensive end becomes a defensive tackle. And now that they've lost some of their defensive tackles, I think that they're just going to do that more because they drafted Peyton Turner in, in the first round, who's a versatile defensive end who played a lot of defensive tackle at Houston. And they talked about how one of their favorite things about him is that versatility. They signed Tano Passignan from Kansas City, who played a 3-4 defensive end or a three technique a lot in Kansas City. So they have players who are made to rotate inside. They like to rotate inside. And I think at least until Anyamata gets back, that's what they're going to do. And it'll be fine. Additionally, Janoris Jenkins was once a great corner. That time was not last year. It was years prior. He is old. And Ken Crawley isn't a good second corner, but he's not going to kill you. And then when you add uh, CJ Gardner-Johnson, to the, to the slot, pissing everybody off and getting punched in the face. That's a good secondary. Obviously, Marshawn Lattimore being the shutdown corner that he usually is wasn't quite last year. That's not bad. I mean, it's not great. It's not what it was last year, but it's certainly not bad at all. And with the offensive improvement I'm seeing, I'm not worried about what they lost. Am I crazy? I think those are good points to make and definitely are things maybe people aren't considering. Um, Emmanuel Sanders, I don't think is much of a loss. Uh, Michael Thomas, I think is relatively replaceable. He's good Michael at what Th he does. Michael Thomas only played 32% of their snaps last year anyway. So we saw what they look like without him and it was fine. Exactly. I mean, he's, he's good at what he does, but he's just limited in what he does. Um, Slant boy. <laughs> which I think is a little unfair to him, but it's not that unfair to him. <laughs> My my biggest issue is their defense, not necessarily their front seven. I think their front seven will be fine because they are relatively deep there and versatile there. My concern is their DBs. 
obviously Marshawn Lattimore is a shutdown. Uh, Marcus Williams, a great safety. But then you have a steep drop-off for the rest of your guys. Um, C.J. Gardner-Johnson's a good slot, but Ken Crawley is rough as your second, especially when you're in a division that has as much offensive firepower as the Saints are in. Then Malcolm Jenkins as your strong safety. Maybe a few years ago, that guy should be playing that linebacker safety hybrid role, and maybe that's what they plan to do with him. But if they plan on using him as a traditional strong safety, they're going to be watching a lot of guys run through the middle of the field wide open. Yeah, I can't refute that. I'm I'm low on Malcolm Jenkins, and I'm hoping that C.J. Gardner-Johnson plays. That's the longest fucking name, by the way. I'm hoping Gardner-Johnson plays a lot of safety when he's not in the slot. And you're right. I I don't love Ken Crawley as a second cornerback. PFF actually seems to. I don't really agree. But I think that it, it'll be an, it'll be passable enough. They'll be able to hold teams under 30, and I think they're going to score 30. And do they beat the Bucs? Maybe not. But I'm not pegging them to win the Super Bowl. I'm pegging them to be a top five, top 10 team. And currently the market sees them as somewhere between 10 and 20, depending on who you ask. Yeah, I think that kind of wraps us up on the Saints. So moving on, next we have the Denver Broncos, who if we're looking at our spreadsheet, Joe, you have listed as the 10th team in the league. I have listed as the 15th team, Vegas the 20th, and ESPN the 26th. So obviously we're both on the gas side, but you're a little bit higher than even I am. So why don't you start us off with some of the reasons you're high on the Broncos? I just really love this roster. I, I think this is the best roster top to bottom outside of quarterback in the entire NFL. It starts in that secondary where I think they have three legitimate starting caliber corners plus Bryce Callahan. So I'm really high on Kyle Fuller. I've loved him ever since he was at Botech. I like Ronald Darby a lot. He's not quite what he was when he was in Buffalo, but he's still a good starting outside corner. And then you had Patrick Sertain, who is just the most polished cornerback I've ever seen in my life. And oh yeah, he's six foot two. <laughs> That's a pretty great slot corner. And then Bryce Callahan is a legitimately good starting slot corner for any other team. Um, Von Miller and Nick Chubb are not what they are supposed to be. Von is old. Chubb has always been overrated. But they're both solid pass rushers. And that makes for a great defense, especially when Vic Fangio is calling the plays. Before we get over to the offensive side of the ball, you want to poke any holes in anything I just said? Yeah, so I, for the most part, I agree with you. I think the defense is the thing that I'm most confident in, and it's going to be a, a top three unit in the league, or it should be. Um, yes, Von Miller is old and coming off some injuries. Bradley Chubb gets hurt a lot, and I think he, he fits really well as a second edge, but he can't do it by himself, so he needs Von to be effective for him to be effective. But their secondary is disgusting. I mean, between Justin Simmons at safety, who's absurd, then you get into those corners that they have four legitimate corners. Granted, I think I saw something today that they're shopping Bryce Callahan yeah, for a trade are. just because they don't have space for him, which yeah. shows how good their DB room is. Um, but those three guys of Kyle Fuller, Ronald Darby, who, like you said, has fallen off a little bit, but he's still a solid second corner. And then Patrick Sertain, who's great. On top of that, you have Vic Fangio calling the plays. So that defense is going to be elite. I, 
I agree with you. And it's why I have them ranked high. Yeah. And then on the offensive side of the ball, maybe we should have gone over them a little bit earlier when we were talking about quarterback decisions with Teddy Bridgewater. I kind of just always assumed he would be the starter on account of they traded for him. So that didn't really shock me. But yet again, a coach is picking the safe option at quarterback here. But one, Drew Locke, he was so abysmal last year in the easiest year to play quarterback of all time without any opposing fans, you know, quiet stadiums, no offseason for defenses to get together. And the dude still couldn't hack it. So they've upgraded at quarterback, in my opinion. Teddy can be about as good as Andy Dalton. And that wide receiver room is so deep. Cortland Sutton is a former basketball player who's tall, fast, and he can go and get that ball. He had alligator arms coming out of SMU, but he figured out how to catch real well before he got hurt last year. Jerry Judy is one of the best wide receiver prospects I've ever seen. I've only been really doing this for five years, but I, that's still, he's really, really good. And he had awesome hands at Alabama, so I don't think his drop from last year will continue. I really don't. I also think that having a better quarterback throwing him the ball will help his drops because Drew Locke is liable to throw a duck or a bullet right through your face, and you never know which one's coming. With Teddy, it's much more standard. Um, KJ Hamler is a water bug on steroids who is just difficult to tackle, and Tim Patrick is a really, really productive big slot. You add in Noah Fant, who's a freak athlete at tight end, and a good running back stable. All Teddy has to do is not mess it up because they also have a solid offensive line. That said, their Achilles heel could be Pat Shermer, somebody that you're familiar with. Yeah, that's why I think I have them lower than you is that I think I'm much more concerned about the marriage of Pat Shermer and Teddy Bridgewater uh, because that's going to be the most conservative offense I've ever seen, especially with scared Vic Fangio as the head coach who's feeling the heat and has already shown that he's going to go conservative by taking Bridgewater, which I agree was the right decision, but he's already showed that he's a little, a little scared. And now you have Pat Shermer, who at least with the Brown and what I've seen since with the Giants and a little bit with Minnesota, but he's classic for getting you seven yards when you need nine. It was, it seemed, at least in Cleveland, every single third down, he got one or two less yards than you needed. And I think that is the perfect summation for his career and that he's solid, but he's always going to do less than what you need, which equals out to Teddy Bridgewater perfectly, who is pretty similar to Dalton, but I think Dalton at least has some juice to him where I think Teddy, maybe apparently he's, you know, a great leader that guys fall in behind like crazy. So he must have that personality, but as far as his play on the field, there's nothing to it. Um, he is truly doing whatever the defense gives him. And when you're already married with all that other conservative play calling and mentality, I think their offense is going to end up being really disappointing despite how incredible their playmakers are. So they'll be a decent team, middle of the pack team, but they won't be special because of how they're run. See, I actually am with you. I think their offense, despite having an elite group of receivers and weaponry, I, I think their offense will be okay. Okay. But we already said we think they're going to have like the best defense in the league if and if not damn near. So how many points do they need to score a game to win? Like 25, 20? Now, granted, they're in the same division as the Chiefs, and that's a tough draw. And the Chargers could be on the come up, and that's a tough draw. But their schedule is not that bad. You look, they start off the year with the Giants, the Jaguars, the Jets before they go to Baltimore. 
I think they're getting off to a 3-0 and start, and I think that's when our value is going to dry up. But at least for the first three weeks, we got to be on this team. Yeah, that's a great start, too, that we can make that money quick because there's going to be value there, and we're going to be able to get some, some quick wins to start off the year. Um, I do worry, obviously, their division is really tough, and they're, they're going to be battling out where there are, you know, four legitimate teams in that division. You know, they all have holes, Kansas City less so, but they all have issues, but are all in the playoff conversation at least. So they have a a tough division along with just that really conservative offense. And I think I agree with you that they won't need to score much, but they're going to have a tough time scoring because it's going to require one of their playmakers to do something crazy. Yeah. Luckily, I think that they have playmakers who are apt to doing things crazy. I agree with you, but you still, you need that to score. And it then to me, it becomes a, an offense that plays like a defense. It gets a lot of turnovers and is because good because they're getting a lot of turnovers. That stuff doesn't last, or at least, you know, you might have a game where your Boston plays left and right, but the next week it won't carry or might not not stable. Yeah. Overall though, I got to say this, this schedule is really easy. We're not doing season win totals, but listen to these games. These are just games that I think are lockdown wins. They play the Giants week one, Jacksonville. They host the Jets. In week 10, they host Philadelphia. In week 14, they host Detroit. The next week, they host Cincinnati. That's six wins right there. And then you add in all of the close games like Baltimore at Pittsburgh, hosting the Raiders, at the Raiders, hosting Washington, at Dallas, another game against the Chargers, and there's a chance they win one game against Kansas City, especially because they play Kansas City week 18, and Kansas City's probably going to be resting starters. Yeah, so for those keeping count at home, that is 14 games, six that are confident wins or relatively confident wins, and then you have eight more that are winnable games. So obviously they're not going to win 14 games. No. But if you split on that eight, which may be aggressive, honestly, with Vic Fangio as your head coach, because I think that's where a lot of those close games come in is just who your coach is and who your quarterback is. And the Broncos are going to be on the losing side of most of those head-to-head battles. Not all of them, but most of them. But say you win half of those or three of those, you're a 9-10 win team. And if you're Denver, who hunted on quarterback this year, I think you're pretty happy with a 9-10 win team. You do a lot worse in the year that you're trying to burn on your way to getting Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, and exactly. I mean, if they go and pull Rodgers out next year, I mean, that team's immediately a favorite. Oh, yeah. They're no, at I least was, in the top, top couple. I was praying they would get Stafford for that exact reason, even though I knew it wouldn't happen. Yeah, I mean, with, with that defense and those playmakers and a decent O-line, I I don't even care who's calling plays at that point. Yeah. Either of those guys is going, I mean, granted, maybe it does matter a little bit because we kind of said that with Tom Brady and they did win the Super Bowl. So maybe it doesn't matter, but man, they made it a lot harder than they needed to. Byron Leftwich is a walking disaster. He is, he is just really an upsetting individual to watch work and they still scored about 30 points a game and won the fucking Super Bowl. So as much as coaching matters and it really does, sometimes you can transcend it. Yeah, and I think that that amount of talent and, you know, say it's still Fangio and Shermer, it's not that bad of a coaching room. It's just like the most neutral coaching room around. Which is fine when your roster is stacked to high heaven. Yeah. 
So Denver is definitely a gas for this year. And especially to start off with those three soft games, we should be able to find some value in there. But if you want to go ahead and move on to our next team on the gas list, which is the Chicago Bears, that if we look at our spreadsheet, Joe, you have ranked as the 11th team in the league. I have ranked as the 16th. And then both Vegas and ESPN agree and have them as the 24th team. So pretty big disparity there, 13 points between you and the field, and then eight points between me and the field. Go ahead and tell me why you think the Bears are in that fringe top 10 team instead of bottom top 10 team or bottom 10 team. All right, so I'm I'm in... First of all, full disclosure, yes, I'm from Chicago. Yes, I bleed Chicago. But my Bears fandom died a good 10 years ago because you can only bash your face into a brick wall so many times. Not if Um, you're a Browns fan. Well, if you're a Browns fan, you're a special kind of masochist, and that's a selection bias problem. But Hey, maybe this year. (laughs) I agree this year, but... I, I actually, I take that back. I don't even want to speak that into the universe <laughs> and have it come back on me. Yeah, we don't want that on tape. Anyhow. I've, I've been hurt before. On the Bears, I think we can agree their defense is going to be at least pretty good, right? That's a reasonable take. Yeah, I don't think, you know, there there's space to debate between how good, but they're going to be above average to really good. Yeah, I think I think you can lock them somewhere in the top 10. I don't think they'll be necessarily number one like they were in 2018. Maybe Khalil Mack fell off a little bit. Losing Kyle Fuller will hurt, even though Jalen Johnson looks really good. Yada, yada, yada. It's all going to average out to they're a good defense. Not great. Certainly never losing you a game. That means that what we really need to focus on is the offensive side of the ball. And I think that there are some very common refrains you hear when criticizing the Bears offense. And I would just like to ask you, like taking the temperature of the room, what do you think the problems are with the Bears offense? So the biggest one that I think is probably the most popular one as well is the offensive line. I don't worry too much about the interior guys. I don't think any of them are studs, but I all think they're solid to good and you don't need to worry about it. However, the tackles look horrible. And with an offense where you need Andy Dalton to feel a little bit comfortable to go through his reads and be in his, you know, nice little safe pocket area, um, you need at least somewhat stable tackle play. And if you don't have that, We've seen it with teams before where even if they have a few good O-linemen, if they have a couple just stinkers, opposing teams can attack the heck out of it and you end up with your quarterback on his back or running around the entire time. Like we saw with the Chiefs in the Super Bowl is a really extreme example or the Browns the entirety of 2019 when Greg Robinson, Chris Hubbard just got beat like drums every week. And despite having really good interior play, Baker Mayfield is still running around the entire season. So that's my biggest worry. Do you want to go ahead and respond to that before we jump into some of the other ones? Yeah, I actually, so first of all, I think everybody knows Andy Dalton's not exactly the dude you want to see running around in the pocket. Um, He's not going to be making any amazing Russell Wilson or Deshaun Watson escapes, uh, though he won't invite pressure the way they do either. Conversation for a different day. Last year in Dallas, he faced, Dallas is renowned for their great offensive line, but last year injuries took its toll or took their toll. And that Dallas Cowboys offensive line was not good because offensive lines are kind of like a, think of them like a metal chain of five links, right? You need, you're only as strong as your weakest link. You have one weak offensive lineman and that is one rusher that's going to get through. So it is important to have five good offensive linemen. And I agree the, the Bears interior offensive line will not be a problem. 
However, I don't quite agree that the offensive tackles will be a huge problem because we're going to be seeing different tackles in the regular season than we saw in the preseason, namely Jason Peters. Now, while Jason Peters is ancient, he is a fossil. He's still a good offensive tackle. Maybe he's not the elite man that he was two, three years ago with Philly, but last year he had to play tackle because of injury and he put up a good PFF grade. They had him as a a solid starter. He's always moved very well, so you don't have to worry about him aging out of athleticism. It's purely a matter of does he stay healthy, and for the time being, it looks like he will. On the right tackle, things get messy because the Bears' second-round pick, Tevin Jenkins, just had back surgery, and while the Bears' management assures me that it's totally fine and just a very small back surgery, there's no back surgery that's minor on a man that large. Yeah, just a quick little cut into that thing that supports his entire 300-plus-pound frame. I think they're, those are quick to heal and recover from. That said, everything we've heard from training camp is that this Larry Borum figure is playing out of his mind and has lost a ton of weight since college, which was his problem. Um, He was a strong player, but he was a very, uh, shall we say, heavy set player. He didn't move good. And he's lost apparently about 50 pounds, which has opened up his movement skills significantly. I don't know. It's a projection. But if I know I have Jason Peters, who is at least going to not fuck everything up at the left tackle while he's healthy, and then I have a player who the Bears seem to think can be good at right tackle, that's four solid offensive linemen and one possibly solid offensive lineman. And that's a hell of a lot better than the disaster that people on Twitter seem to think is occurring. All right. So I agree with you. Maybe it's blown out a little bit, but I still think that's a lot of projection and will be what, if anything, sinks the Bears and brings them closer to uh, this 24th ranking that the national groups have. It'll be because they have Jason Peters rolling out there on his walker, and then this guy that you think might be good and are hoping you figure out in the regular season, um, because that whole training camp and preseason time you normally figure this out apparently didn't work, which doesn't speak confidence to me. So that's where I'll continue to go back that I'm concerned and what will sink that team. Yeah, and it is a little bit of a projection. Like I said, I liked Borum at Mizzou. But he was a fifth round pick for a reason. That reason is because he's fat. Um, he's not fat anymore, but you're right. Even if he was like a high caliber prospect, he's a rookie. We don't know. So I hear you. That said, moving on to the next point, I think most people would agree that Matt Nagy is probably more of a problem than an asset. It's a projection I know. I'm speculating a little, but I'm banking on Matt Nagy being a legitimate asset and a really good offensive play caller. And his system traditionally involves getting the ball out real quick. And when you get the ball out real quick to your playmakers who are fast as all hell this year, you don't have to block as long. You know, we saw like that. The classic example is the Peyton Manning, Adam Gase offense in Denver, where they had no offensive line, but the ball's out right away anyway. So it doesn't matter. That very well could be what they're doing. They We saw it as recently as last year with the Steelers, where their offensive line was pretty rough. I mean, they couldn't run for anything because they were so poor. And they just threw the ball in a second and a half every time they snapped it. And they had the playmakers that it worked. I mean, they, they crumbled later in the year because they started getting hurt. And I think Ben's arm kind of gave out or maybe people figured it out a little bit, whatever it was. But it was really effective. And I think the Bears have more talent, especially more consistency from Dalton than maybe you would with Ben. 
um, in that you can push down the field a little bit and you don't get as many of those silly turnovers that Ben has been prone to in the last year or two. But I think the naggy issue, you really are banking on him being the, the savant from Kansas City that people thought he was when he got hired and after he took Mitch Trubisky to the playoffs a couple of times. Yeah, I, like I'll, I'll put it this way. If Matt Nagy is who Bears fans think he is, which is like a, an, an average at best, if not bad coach, yeah, then I have the Bears at about 24 exactly. But I really, I really think that he is a good coach because I've seen it and I've seen what he tries to do with Trubisky and what Trubisky failed him at. And to the point earlier of getting the ball out quickly, it's what he did in Kansas City with Alex Smith. A lot of RPOs, a lot of quick stuff, a lot of getting people open in space. And it's what he tried to do not last year, but the year before with Trubisky and Trubisky couldn't figure it out. And that's why they went and got Nick Foles specifically because Foles excelled in that quick distribution scheme in Philadelphia under Doug Peterson. And they just wanted somebody who could get the ball to the receiver's hand. And that's why if you look at the Bears, the receivers now are Demir Bird, fast as hell. Marquise Goodwin, ridiculously fast. They just signed uh, Rashad Perryman, ridiculously fast. And then Darnell Mooney, who is one of my favorite young prospects, he's like 90% of Tyreek Hill. He's a little slower than Hill, he's a little less quick than Hill, which means he's a lot faster and a lot quicker than damn near everybody else. So you get any of those guys the ball in a little bit of space, and they're going to turn it into something. I expect to see a lot of yards after the catch, and then eventually, occasionally toss a ball 30 feet in the air and hope Allen Robinson flies up and gets it. I think that works, and I think Nagy's capable of that. Yeah, I mean, I think that would work. That sounds like a productive offense that he has a history of running. So it definitely, I wouldn't be surprised at all to see that be their plan. I guess my worry comes into Nagy is worried about his job and he's feeling the heat from a pretty rough media in Chicago media. He's been here a few years and after he started hot, he's kind of fallen off a little bit. And we've seen some weird quotes and decisions from him mounting up uh, as recently as the it takes three to four years for the offense going. And while I don't think that's actually a big issue, I think it's just a sign that he's feeling the heat. And when coaches start feeling the heat, they start messing up in my experience. And so the team, I could see them being in a lot of really close competitive games with good teams, but could end up screwing some of them up because Nagy gets a little lost in the pressure because he hasn't been great in pressure as his career as a head coach where he's made some silly decisions. And now if he's got that extra voice in his head saying, if you screw this up, you might get fired. I don't think that's going to help his decision-making. So they might end up in close games that then they end up losing because Nagy makes a weird choice. And Andy Dalton, as steady as he is, he's not making the exciting play to pull out a game in the last minute, at least not at this point especially not at this point in his career. So that's where I could see the coaching coming in and hampering them a little bit and what I'm worried about with Nag. I do have, so my handicap is based in large part on speculation over what the offense will look like, right? And Matt Nagy's the type of coach where he shows nothing in the preseason, so we have no idea what the offense is going to look like. And the Bears defense is one of those defenses that's good enough that all training camp, you're going to hear about how the defense won the day over and over again, but it's going to win the day over most offenses. So that's not really helpful. Luckily, we get to sample before we buy because there is no way in hell I'm betting on the Bears against the powerhouse juggernaut that is the Rams week one. And we're going to get to see the Bears against an at least good, possibly great defense, how they function in prime time with the lights on in this new 
possibly new offense, new quarterback. We'll know how the offensive line holds up against Aaron Donald and the exotic blitzes that LA intends to bring. We'll learn everything we need to know after week one. And then we move on to week two and we get Cincinnati. First of all, I think we'll be betting on the Bears in that game. I'm just going to tell you right now. But there's a legitimate there's a legitimate chance that we will know whether or not the Bears are a real team to gas about two minutes into the second week. Who who do the Bengals play the first week? I'm looking at it now, actually. Minnesota, which is going to be just a slobber knocker of ugh. Yeah, because my only worry with week two is that, you know, I think the Bears are going to get beat up a little bit against the Rams. However, I could see the Bengals coming out against the Vikings, whose defense will at least be solid and going and just terrorizing Joe Burrow. And he, you know, looks like he's still scared about his knee and he's running around and, you know, all the the doom stories from their training camp come true. And they just get run by the Vikings in week one. We might lose our value then, but that's a worry for later. We'll jump Um, off that bridge when we come to it. Definitely. But in theory, yeah, no, that'll, that'll be a good, a good bet for us, especially if the Rams are as good as we think they are and they piece up the bears week one. All right. So then we can jump to our next team that I think is actually the one where we have the biggest disagreement, uh, the Atlanta Falcons. So Joe, you have the Falcons as your 12th ranked team. I have them as my 24th ranked team. And then Vegas and ESPN both have them ranked as their 21st team. So I'm lower than even the national guys are, and you're a good chunk higher than they are. So how would you start us off with why you think the Falcons are at least an above average team? Yeah, I guess this is going to be our first crossfire here. Um, First of all, I'd like to get something off my chest. I think Dan Quinn owes a lot of betters a lot of money because we give a lot of shit to guys like Hugh Jackson and Freddie Kitchens and Mike Vrabel for being just god-awful head coaches, but none of them blew a 25-point lead in the fucking third quarter of the Super Bowl and then proceeded to lose games even more magnificently. They lost that game against Dallas in week one or two last year because the special teams didn't know to pick up a football on an onside kick. Now, while that's egregious, somehow the defense allowed like 35 points in garbage time in a game that should have been sewn up because Zeke Elliott fumbled like it was his fucking job. And it only got weirder from there. And it always was weird. And Dan Quinn's defense was always absolutely terrible because it's so vanilla. It is just the fucking weakest. We don't need to get into the particulars. Nobody really cares about defensive scheme. All we know is Dan Quinn was awful at coaching. He was extremely conservative when it came to going forward on fourth down and play call philosophy. And his defense sucked ass. In comes Art Smith. And more importantly for me, Dean Pease. First of all, Dean Pease has never had a bad defense. The man is a savant. He will put together a good defense. It doesn't matter who is on the team. It will be fine. Second of all, I actually kind of like Atlanta's defensive pieces. I don't like their edges at all. I hate them. Dante Fowler is nothing. Whoever they have on the other side is so nothing that I don't know his name. And that's rare for me. But they have good defensive tackles. They've got surprisingly good corners. And I like their linebackers and safeties. So their safeties are going to be Eric Harris, who's a fine, strong safety. He's like perfectly replacement level. And then Duran Harmon, who, despite playing in Detroit, actually is a good free safety. He's ball hawking. He was great in New England. And now he's not being hampered by Matt Patricia, who probably is the worst coach. AJ Terrell, first round pick out of Clemson, is their starting outside corner. I really like him. I love his man technique. Uh, And then their other corners, the other side is going to be Isaiah Oliver, who's a high pick that shows some promise. And then Fabian Moreau, who is a consummate second cornerback. 
in the slot's going to be Kendall Sheffield, who people probably don't know of, but he's so quick. He's always in phase. He's like the perfect slot corner because his ball skills aren't great. He's pretty small, but damn, is he a jitterbug. And then, yeah, their outside linebackers are going to be Jacob Mariner with Dante Fowler and or Steven Means, and those are all terrible. But I love their five techniques in Grady Jarrett and Jonathan Bullard. Those dudes are going to get pressure alone much less with the schemed up blitzes that Dean Pease is known for bringing at places like New England, Tennessee, and Baltimore. I love Grady Jarrett. I think their DTs are strong. However, the issue is DTs are probably the position group that matters close to the least of defense, whereas edge, which is one of the more important, they're horrible at. Uh, Their linebackers are terrible. Granted, I don't think it matters a ton, but they're not good and they're going to be a struggle, um, even with those DTs cleaning up a lot for them and giving them, you know, easy angles. I like Deion Jones and I'm hopeful for Oluokun. I like Deion Jones as well, but he's, you know, I mean, he's that, that hybrid type guy um, more so than your classic, like, let me go tackle people. And he's definitely valuable, but he's more of a role type guy. So it just limits. Um, as far as their secondary, they have a lot of talent, but man, they are young. They are young as hell. And that's a, that's a lot of trust to put in a couple really young guys. Especially because I know Isaiah Oliver is a high pick and he he dropped or was going to be a really high pick and then dropped a little bit for whatever reason. There was medical. I don't remember. I think it was medical. But he's also had taken his bumps in the league. So I don't think it's a, a foregone conclusion that he's a solid corner for you that you can rely on. Fabian Moreau, he's he's fine. Yeah, he's solid. Uh, AJ Terrell, I mean, yeah, he's high pick. He was what, last year, yeah? Yeah, he was last year's first round pick. And I really like him. Yeah, I I think he'll be he'll be solid, but it is a lot of trust and a lot of young guys when you don't have a good pass run. So I think that's where their defense might struggle. I I have bigger issues with their offense, to be honest, but I'll let you get into that before we uh, cross over there. So as far as their offense goes, I won't deny that they've lost a lot and not just in Julio Jones, because Julio didn't play much last year and their offense was still fine. I think they've lost more just in that Matt Ryan's another year older and his arm was never exactly a laser to begin with. And I I love me some Matt Ryan, but I think the time is coming. That said, Matt Ryan's at his best in that wide zone play action system, that Shanahan system that Art Smith runs really well. And I still think that Matt Ryan is a good quarterback. I have him as a B quarterback right now. Uh, amongst starters, I think that he's probably right right in that six to ten range still. And I think that's plenty enough to operate an offense that is well schemed up with two really effective weapons in Calvin Ridley and Kyle Pitts. So it, I think Matt Ryan can distribute the ball to them. I think that guys like Alamade Zacchaeus, look at me pronouncing words, are are totally pedestrian, but it's not like San Francisco's had great wide receivers these last few years, and they can still move the ball because as you, a Browns fan, know, if you're running that wide zone, Kubiak-style, Shanahan-style scheme, you don't need special receivers. You just need guys who don't drop the ball and run their route. First of all, I forgot to call you on it. I recognize that you tried to slip in Mike Vrabel when you were talking about well-known bad coaches. You put him in with Hugh Jackson and Freddie Kitchens. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, everyone knows this. The hate runs deep. Um, But going back to the Falcons, I agree with you on Matt Ryan. 
I still think he's a valuable starter. He's definitely, you know, not what he used to be in. The, the years are catching up to him, but he's still an effective quarterback that will put you in good positions to win games. However, I think that's kind of where the benefits of their offense fall off. Uh, Kyle Pitts is a stud. I like Calvin Ridley. You know, I maybe I'm not as high on him as other people just because I don't think he's particularly special in anything. But it's two solid weapons. But beyond that, their offense is a little dry. And their offensive line is a mess. They've been trying to fix it for a few years now. And it seems like it just is constantly in flux. And it's not, it doesn't look like it's going to be good this year. Um, and while that, that Arthur Smith offense doesn't require elite offensive line play as long as the guys can move it it's going to be tough to run a lot of play action and wide zone stuff if your offensive line is bad so coupled with new coach aging quarterback bad offensive line thin playmakers on a defense that's weak at top positions is why i have them lower than even some of the national groups yeah you know when I was trying to explain it and I'm going too deep on playmakers, that doesn't feel great. It It's difficult to not love a team that has a good quarterback and a coaching staff that is really good. I So some of the arguments for me that I'm not going to leverage because I don't quite agree with them are, first of all, um, I don't know if you people know about Pythagorean wins, but it's this relatively outdated idea that like, depending on how many it basically uses point differential to determine how many games a team deserve to win, which is ridiculous because like, for instance, the Browns point differential was tiny because when they had a big lead, they would just play prevent win by three points and get off the field, go home. So they dominated the games like against Tennessee and their Pythag for that game would be negative. Anyhow, the Falcons were massively positive in their Pythag. And as we know, they lost like four or five games in devastating terrible fashion almost entirely because of awful coaching at the hands of Dan Quinn who's now gone and replaced with actually good coaches like they went from a bad coach deserving to win about seven games to good coach not just average but good coaches and you would imagine that that seven jumps up to a nine or ten but you're right I don't know how they put up all those points last year it might have been a little bit fluky it might have been a little garbage timey because Julio didn't play that much and they do lack depth at wide receiver you know, their running backs are not special. And while that doesn't matter that much to me, because I'm firmly in the running backs don't matter crowd, they're going to run the ball a lot. And you'd rather not waste those touches. So you're probably right. I'm probably too high at 12, but I still think I'm going to try to bet on them, if only to maintain the tradition of the Falcons taking my money from me for five years. After years of them just crushing me, I swear there was a stretch where I didn't win like a single bet on them and I just kept betting. So it's like, this is the week they're going to do it. And it just never came. They were so good and they never capitalized because Dan Quinn. He, he was very bad. I will give you that. So I'm not going to fade them, even though I have them probably lower than the average person does, because I, I could see a route in which if the offensive line is solid, Dean Pease coaches a league average defense and Matt Ryan's able to properly get the ball to Calvin Ridley and Kyle Pitts enough that it matters. 
then yeah, they could be a solid team, but they're going to have tough games in terms of their division, rookie coach, everything that I already talked about. So I think if anything, they're going to underwhelm rather than happily surprise. And so that's why I'm going lower rather than higher, but I'm not exactly going to bet on it either. They also happen to be in a pretty tough fucking division that especially as high as I am on the Saints, I like the Falcons. And I think that at best, they're the third best team in this division. So I don't think there's a great angle for betting on the Falcons just yet. Shall we move across the aisle over to the teams that we're looking to fade? First, we can jump into the Seattle Seahawks, who you and I both have as the 14th ranked team in the league. However, Vegas has them at nine and ESPN has them at eight. So you want to kick us off with why you have them a few spots lower than the average, uh, the average person might. I would just like to say that Alex and I do not collaborate when we're doing these rankings we do them totally blind of one another and seattle is just one of like seven or eight teams that we happen to have in exactly the same spot um i also would like to note that colin cowherd very recently had seattle as his fourth best team in the nfl which where colin was wrong my he had him as a fourth ranked team are you serious when those are the words that i said yes i i wrote down his uh he did a top 10 ranking a couple weeks ago and i wrote it down that is absurd. That's why I noted it. But my handicap is primarily on Russell Wilson. I I liked Russell Wilson. I always thought he's a little underrated. And now they finally let him cook. And I think he's really overrated because they started off the season hot. But once teams figured out, oh, just throw a couple safeties over the top because their entire offense is predicated on Russ throwing a moon ball or failing completely. Teams started playing those high shells. They took away the deep balls. And Russ was actively bad like not bad for Russell Wilson but he was bad for an NFL starting quarterback the second half of that year culminating in getting soundly beaten by the Rams with half of Jared Goff that's tough to come back from and they're certainly not going to return to being the powerhouse running team that they once were because their offensive line is decent and their running backs are not special yeah I mean I haven't ranked exactly the same as you do Uh, they the defense Last year, obviously, was notorious for being horrible. They got better as the year went on, and they were, I think, roughly league average by by the time the year ended. And I think that will that will maintain. You know, they they lost a couple guys, um, but they'll stick around that same place. However, the the point that we definitely differ is on the offense, and probably most likely Russ specifically. I'm in the same boat. I'm a little higher on him than you are. I I think he is a really good quarterback. However, you have to play a certain type of football, and it's a roller coaster with him because the best Russ is one that's running around and then chucking balls downfield and making big aggressive plays. Because when he has to do that, just check down, keep making the right read, he starts to struggle, which is something that we saw last year. So they're going to, that's where I have them lower. And I agree with you in, in just that I, I'm not as high on Russ. And yes, they have studs in Metcalf and Tyler Lockett, but it won't be, they don't have anyone to kind of rescue Russ underneath or a run game or something to take that pressure off of him and give him a little bit more time, whatever it is he needs to to think through things and limit some of those mistakes. They don't have that aspect and it'll, their offense, I think will be very similar to what it was last year, minus some of those crazy highs that started off when, before people had figured it out. Now, I do think that they'll run a little bit more wide zone because they brought in a guy who was the Rams passing coordinator last year to be their offensive coordinator. And I think that Russell Wilson will be effective on bootlegs throwing like outbreaking uh, corner routes to tight ends. 
But as you noted, their wide receivers are good, but kind of limited in a weird way. DK Metcalf's a freak of nature because he's gigantic, ripped out of his mind, and really, really fast. But as has been noted, he turns like a battleship, which kind of limits him from running those short routes. You don't really want DK Metcalf to have the ball in space. He's not a guy you throw screens to. He's not going to kill you on slants and curls because he just doesn't change direction quick enough. So he's amazing at deep balls. I mean, like, ungodly. But if you take that away from him, he doesn't have a second pitch and Wilson doesn't have a second pitch. So you've got a wide receiver and a quarterback who are uniquely structured to run one kind of thing and uniquely weak running other things. And that could be a problem. Additionally, I'm lower on their defense because they got rid of the Shaq Griffin that has two hands, the cornerback one, who's pretty good. And they replaced him with Akello Witherspoon, who I think is balls in the bad way. Additionally, they might have the worst edge defenders I've ever heard of. They're going to roll out Carlos Dunlap in his walker with his diaper on. And then a guy who should be playing defensive tackle. I think he was their first round pick two years ago, but his name is escaping me. I think he's from TCU. Give me a second. I'll look it up. LJ Collier. Just awful. Yeah. TCU, six foot two, 290 pounds, really should be playing defensive tackle. It cannot move. He ran a 4.91 second 40 yard dash and his three cone was a 7.71. Now for reference, defensive ends are very easy to scout using the combine because athleticism is really all that matters. A defensive end should have a 40 yard dash lower than 4.8 probably, definitely lower than 4.9. And their three cone should be about seven or lower. This guy's almost at eight. So he also turns like a battleship, has the flexibility of some plywood and cannot move. Man, Seattle just does not care about agility whatsoever. Or apparently They're, getting after the quarterback. They are they are just a straight, straight north-south team. Well, um, speaking of being a typecast team, because they have absolutely no edge rush, they drop their $20 million safety into fucking edge rushing positions all the time. And while Jamal Adams is good at rushing the passer, especially for a safety, he's incredible at it for a safety, that takes one more person out of coverage, which means that your backup strong safety is going to have to actually play as a safety, or you're just going to run one high the entire time, which is easy to beat, especially for precise quarterbacks. So they really hamstring themselves in a lot of ways on defense. And Bobby Wagner ain't getting younger. Yeah, I think the, they definitely lean on that strong linebacking core to cover for having Jamal Adams up and rushing. But it's definitely something that they have to scheme around because they have such a deficit of talent at pass rusher that, yeah, you're right. Jamal Adams is he's a good pass rusher in general, but for a safety is absurd. However, exactly what you said, they have to take him out. And it's not like you're now dropping a D end into coverage. <laughs> they might as well. They're, you're, you're having to expand other people's responsibilities or play a different type of defense simply because they just don't have the talent. But yeah. I do think that they're, it seems like they're always able to figure it out. So I think they might be a little bumpy to start the year because I think losing Shaquille Griffin is large. Uh, they'll, they'll be able to figure it out once they, they see how teams play them. Granted, I could see it being pretty rough to start the year. And that might be a, a reason. We should look at their schedule. I got it. They start off at Indianapolis. And regardless of who plays quarterback, Eason or Wentz, it's going to be the same game plan. They're going to get the ball out quick and they're going to get the ball in the wide receiver's hands. And those corners are not going to be able to catch up. Then they're going to play, they're going to host Tennessee. And Tennessee is a great roster. It is coached like shit. Fuck you, Mike Vrabel. But 
it, they're not covering Julio and AJ Brown. They're not stopping Derrick Henry. They're not getting through that offensive line. So they're going 0 2. And then they get a break with Minnesota only to turn around and play San Francisco and LA, then Pittsburgh, and then New Orleans. So there's a good chance that they're looking at like two and two and five. Yeah, they're they're going to be a team that we should be paying attention to those first the first month and a half of the season because they're going to struggle. Yeah, and especially those first couple of weeks where they're playing the Colts and the Titans, there's going to be value there for sure. So yeah, early fade in the Seattle Seahawks. Yeah, that'll be well, at least the first two weeks. We should be fading the Seahawks. I I'm scared of betting on Indianapolis because it feels like every possible thing that could go wrong has been going wrong for them for the last two weeks. But it doesn't look like they're going to get bit for their sins. Like Wentz looks like he's going to be healthy, even if he's not. I like Eason at least enough to beat that terrible Seahawks defense in one week that they had all offseason to scheme for. I really love that coach. And like, oh, they might they might be missing Quentin Nelson, even though they probably won't be. They get the ball out so quick. I don't care who's on their offensive line. Half the reason their offensive line is considered so good is because they get the ball out quicker than anybody. Yeah, we're gonna have to see what that what that line looks like and who who's playing quarterback. Yeah. But it's definitely an early one to pay attention to. I like in principle, I like the Tennessee. I like Tennessee even more. However, there is the Charlie Day wild card that is Mike Rabel and that you don't know if he's going to go psychopath aggressive or go full coward and punt from the other team's 40 with a minute left in the game. Watching Mike Rabel single-handedly turn the ball over like three or four times via stupid punts and lose that Baltimore game unilaterally in the playoffs last winter probably took five years off my life. That's the only game that I didn't properly handicap the entire postseason. I, I had one loss against the spread the entire postseason. It was that game, and it ripped my goddamn heart out. It's it's the the Mike Vrabel just, I feel like it's a true roulette wheel. It's a 50-50. Speaking of things that are completely fucking unpredictable, the next team on my fade list is Miami, and there's no way they do what they did last year, right? All right, so we, this is another one that we have a disagreement on. You have the Dolphins ranked as the 21st team in the league. I have them as the 12th. Then Vegas has them as the 18th, and ESPN has them as the 14th. Now, I admit I may be a little high on them because, as you know, I do not like Tua. I don't think he's an effective quarterback whatsoever, and he will hold that offense back something fierce. Preach. Their offense their offensive line looks a little shaky. However, their playmakers are just raw, dirty speed. Yeah, and Tua, Tua can do that because he doesn't have to actually do anything. If they run the offense that we're talking about for some of these other teams, like the Bears or the Colts of just get the ball out quick and let your guys run, they're really well set up to do that. And they're going to be able to pick on teams because they might, they might play defenses that have one or two fast guys, but they're not going to have anyone that has the three three, four really, truly quick guys to keep up with them. And they're just going to be yet crazy that their offense will be solid. And then their defense is going to be great. I mean, their, their defensive backs are just silly in uh, Byron Jones. And then Xavier got that new, that new contract and is happy and ready to go back to being a lockdown. Uh, and Brian Flores, I think he's just, he's a good coach. He's know? a really good defensive know. coach. And, and I think he's the type where he just keeps the team running smooth. So he's not adding anything to the offensive room. 
but he's just keeping the team running uh, focused. They're all on the same page and they tune out distractions well. So I think that that defense is going to go well. They're in, you know, a, a weaker division and they, they just have so much speed that I think they're going to be able to overcome a lot of those issues uh, being Tua on the O-line. So I agree that Brian Flores is a good coach. I, I like him as a defensive mind. However, a lot of their success last year, a lot was just massively inordinate turnover luck. We're like, we're talking about like they beat the Rams and I think they had 21 points off of fucking fumbles that you can't count on that. That's not happening again. And I know that people say, oh, you can produce turnovers by creating pressure. One, bullshit. Two, Andrew Van Ginkle is such a menace creating so much incredible pressure that quarterbacks are coughing up balls. I don't think so. Because their edge rushers, while Jalen Phillips, their first round pick is immensely talented. Who knows if that dude's ever going to play football with the injury history and the aspirations of being a rapper, which may or may not be more important to him than playing football. I don't know. I do know he's probably not playing week one. And that's not a great sign. We're off to a bad start already for a guy I really love when he actually plays. But Emmanuel Ogba, somebody that you and I know very well from his Browns days, he's their other edge rusher. I'm not impressed with him. He's pure average. What? <laughs> Alex's middle Manuel finger Arba is a treasure and he would be an absolute menace if he was still in Cleveland. I still am upset with John Dorsey for shipping out Emmanuel Ogba and letting him blossom elsewhere. I don't think Emmanuel Ogba is carrying a pass rush so fierce that it's going to cause the Dolphins to lead the league in takeaways again. And I think that takeaways help them a lot. I think that Tua will probably be better this year than he was last year simply because it's really, really rare that anybody is any worse than Tua was last year. It was truly, truly abysmal. But I'm just worried that it's going to be difficult to rely on that much yak from your wide receivers with a bad O-line and an inability to run the ball whatsoever and a bad quarterback. It, it's okay. Jalen Waddle's incredible. I love him. He's the best wide receiver prospect I think I've ever seen. Will Fuller, when he does occasionally play, is tough to stop because he's so fast and he has underrated ball skills. He's actually like substantially good at catching footballs. People don't give him credit for that. Albert Wilson looks like he might be playing for the first time in half a decade. He's very fast and has been very productive in the past. And then they've got gadget guys like Jakeem Grant, who may or may not be on the roster week one, who's just a menace in space, but can't really figure out how to play football. They've got weapons. I don't know if they're going to be creative enough to run that air raid, get the ball in space system. I think they're going to try to run the ball. I don't think they're going to be very good at running the ball. And really, it just boils down to, I think the defense is good. I don't think it's great. And I think it played fucking incredibly great last year in order to get them on the edge of the playoffs. I think it's going to regress a lot. I think their offense is going to be similar. I think they're going to be okay. And that sucks because I really wanted to bet on them beating the Patriots week one, but I'm having a tough time getting there. Yeah, I think the the biggest area we differ is the defense because I I largely agree with you on the offense. You're they're not going to be great. I think they'll be honestly really similar to Denver. I think the the teams are actually pretty similar in general, which for me I have Denver is the 15th ranked team and Miami is the 12th ranked team, which for me is purely a coaching situation and that I think Brian Flores is 
similar as a defensive coach and as an actual head coach, he's miles ahead of Vic Fangio because Fangio is poor at the head coaching duties and it seems like Flores is great at them, but their offense is going to be similar. Denver is a better O-line and Teddy's a more reliable quarterback. I think Teddy Bridgewater is substantially better than Tua. I think he's substantially better as well. However, I don't think it matters all that much for the type of offense they're going to run. And same for the O-line. Yeah, they won't be able to run the ball like Denver can. But the teams are really similar in my view um, because both have really good defenses. Miami's defense isn't as good. I'll grant you that. But I think they're in that Patriots mold where they're going to cover everyone and they will manufacture pressure. Their front seven is largely a bunch of dudes where you have a couple guys that you've heard of, but kind of just a bunch of guys that somehow play well. And then you have names in the secondary that lock it down and create and somehow turn in a top eight defense. And I think that's what the Dolphins will do. So they're very similar to Denver to me, which is a 10 to 15 ranking. I will say their secondary is just ridiculously deep. And some of the players like Noah Igbenogenine has not panned out. He doesn't look like he knows how to play football yet. But that man was considered a first-round pick. I do think it is a little unprincipled that I have Denver at 10 and Miami at 21, but I really can't get over how much I hate Tua. Like, okay, I, I grade quarterbacks on a GPA system. So, like, the same kind of grades that you got in high school, 4.0 GPA is an A, a 1 is a D, you know. I have Tua as a 1.4. That's the lowest in the NFL amongst starters. I have Bridgewater as a 2.2, which is just a rock-solid C+. And I mean, yeah, the difference between a C plus and a D plus is not significant. Actually, I think a 1.4 is probably actually a C minus technically. Not a huge significant gap just because both are bad. But I think Tua could actively lose you games. Whereas I think Bridgewater will probably just not fuck you that bad. That's a very fair concern because Tua can can and has lost games for the Dolphins before. Um, I think they were getting good turnovers. Yeah. And I think this year will help because anyone coming in as a rookie with no offseason wasn't really going to know what they were doing. Um, So I think Tua will make much better decisions this year, but he's always going to be limited. He's never going to be a technician that's just tearing apart the defense's soft zones or anything. And he doesn't have the arm talent to overcome the other deficiencies. So yeah, I agree with you too. It's pretty horrible. I just won't. I just don't think it matters all that much because for the most part, he's going to be throwing under five yards. And he did that really well at Alabama. His issue is just five to like 35 yards. He can't hit anything. And then magically beyond 35 yards, he can actually throw a pretty good ball again, which is perfect for their wide receivers, which is, you know, run really fast past that dude. And Tua can go put up a nice ball for him. That's true. I mean, it, it, it is funny. His, his deep ball is probably his best attribute. Mostly because the rest of his attributes suck, but his deep ball is act- it's actively fine. It's good. It's a good deep ball. Uh, it doesn't go too far because his arm is real fucking weak, but it goes where he wants when it goes as far as he can get it. And he's got good arc on it, which I know he you does. love. I do. The trajectory matters and he drops it in there. He gets it real high so that the lateral accuracy doesn't matter anymore. That is true. But how can I bet tough. on a team he's with tough. a terrible quarterback? How can I bet on a team that has the worst quarterback? The worst is him and Hurts, and I think he's worse than Hurts because Hurts can run. Yeah, I mean, I'm not betting on them because I think they're pretty <laughs> properly ranked. I'm a, a squish higher than the other people, but I, in the same realm, 
and I don't think I'll really get much value. Um, I may in week one, but I also don't feel super duper confident about that bet yet either, which will workshop. All right. Should we move on? Yeah, let's uh, go ahead to another one that we are low on, you a little bit more than me, the Arizona Cardinals from the wonderful Valley of the Sun. You have them ranked as the 22nd best team in the league. I have them as the 18th. And then yet again, Vegas and ESPN agree, and they have them ranked as the 11th best team in the league. So why do you have them so low? I think the better question is, what should I be high on? Like, a lot of a lot of the thing that I think people are excited about is Kyler Murray. Inexplicably, inexplicably, he was getting some MVP hype early last year. What? I I think Kyler Murray is a subpar starting quarterback. Yes, he's a fun runner. He's not going to run that often because he is five eight. And if he does run, he is going to leave yards on the field because he's five eight, and you cannot risk him getting hit. And if he gets hit, it's down to Chris Strevler, who was bad in the CFL. So no, I. I like Cliff Kingsbury more than most, actually, because I think that he can get the same offense out of damn near any quarterback. But I actually don't like the way his offense is structured for the wide receivers he has, because his offense is the epitome of getting the ball out lightning quick, so many screens, extremely low average depth of target. And then he's getting the ball in space to guys like Newt Hopkins and AJ Green, who cannot move. They're good receivers, but their their niche is that they go up and steal balls out of the sky and never drop them. Their weakness is that they're not great runners. So you're playing, you're cutting off their right arm and then telling them to go play left-handed and expecting the best. I'm not so optimistic. I don't like their quarterback and I hate their secondary. Let me just read you who their secondary is. At left cornerback is Robert Alford, playing for the first time in three years because of consecutive devastating injuries. At right cornerback was going to be Malcolm Butler's old ass until he retired recently. So now it's probably going to be Byron Murphy, who was terrible on the outside as a rookie and finally blossomed last year when they kicked him inside the slot, which means that they could play Marco Wilson on the outside, who's a rookie out of Florida, fourth round pick. He's got traits, but I don't think he's ready yet. And then their strong safety is Jalen Thompson, who exactly, with Buda Baker being a legitimately good free safety. They're going to get nuked. Yeah, they're going to be, they're they're not going to be good. Their record will look worse than they are even because they're in a really tough division. God damn, are they? But yeah, they're not a good team, you know, definitely below average simply because they they run their offense kind of counterintuitively like you talked about on top of that their their defense has got awful uh they they have Chandler Jones and JJ Watt which is great Nate Buda Baker is great I like Isaiah Simmons but yeah they have no one to cover no one that can cover in that division just generally in the NFL now you have to have more than that to be competitive and I think their their offense would have to score 30 plus points a game just for shots at winning. And that's going to be hard to do. Granted, I am higher on them than you are. And it's because I'm higher on Kyler, not because I think he's actually a good quarterback, but because he's useful in his versatility, kind of like Lamar is. But Kyler has more throwing ability, in my opinion, um, but not as much running. However, he still does have a lot of scoot to him. 
and offenses have to worry about that, especially now that the Cardinals have names and people that defenses are going to worry about downfield in A.J. Green, New Hopkins, Christian Kirk. They're going to have to worry more about over the top and aren't going to be able to commit as many people to playing up near the line to contain Kyler. And I could see that putting a really heavy stress on a lot of defenses, especially with Cliff calling the plays because he is a great offensive coach. He just, I don't think, is a great head coach and is horrible at figuring out the defensive side of the ball. But so I think they they have an avenue to be effective and they could have a really exciting offense, but they're still limited by Kyler not being intelligent as a quarterback and the offense being run the way it is. Yeah, and the irony is that I actually really like the Cardinals wide receiving core, but I think they deploy it upside down. So like the way that they run their offense is all about just getting the ball in space. And they have three dudes who you really want to have the ball in space. Christian Kirk, Andy Isabella, and Rondale Moore. If your number one target is Rondale Moore and you're just getting him the ball on screens like three times a drive, I think you're going to have a good offense. And then if you bring in Nuke Hopkins and AJ Green to run like an occasional deep route, either as a decoy or on like long plays, that could be really good. But instead, they're going to give the bulk of their snaps to the dudes who run deep, and then they're not going to run them deep. I'm not concerned with their offensive line at all. I think it'll be plenty good, especially considering the offense they run. I like their linebackers, but the other thing to focus on is their schedule's a bitch. It starts off about as easy as it's going to get. Week one, and we'll probably be betting on this game, week one they go to Tennessee, and that game is floating around a field goal for the Titans. So we, we're probably it's probably like Titans minus two and a half. We're probably going to take that one. Week two, they play Minnesota, and week three, they play Jacksonville. So that's like nice and easy. Then they start the Rams, the 49ers, and then the Browns. A break by beating Houston, then Green Bay, and San Francisco again. Yikes. At this point, they're probably going to have a losing record. They're probably going to be in fourth place in that division, and they're probably going to give up all hope. Yeah, and seats will be very hot by then, if not burned through. Because Cliff, I feel like, is already kind on his last legs going into this year. Yep. After underperforming last year, even though I think they were unrealistic expectations given that the talent level on the team. However, I think he's still, he's going to be feeling it. And we may see another case of scared coach does silly things. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think Cliff may be especially prone to doing that because he's shown that in other places. So they could definitely really implode as well, especially with that schedule in the meat of the season. All right, we're uh, ready to jump on to the next one in our fade series. We have the Minnesota Vikings, which you have ranked as the 23rd best team in the league. I have ranked as the 20th. A slight jump up, Vegas has them ranked as the 17th. And then ESPN has them all the way up at 13. So a uh, total break between you and ESPN of 10 points. So I've got a few gripes with this team, and they're not the typical ones. We know they have good wide receivers. We know that their offensive line is greatly improved and might actually be solid this year. But I look at this defense first. Now, so they've got Xavier Woods, who's a slightly below replacement level free safety, and then Harrison Smith, who's a good but aging strong safety. Patrick Peterson, who is not good anymore at all. He is a husk. And then Brashad Breland, who is like a slightly below average second corner, but he's fine. Their linebackers are incredible, but that doesn't really matter because their defensive line is terrible. They've got Danielle Hunter, who's still pretty good. 
but then it's they're starting Michael Pierce and Dalvin Tomlinson instead of Sheldon Richardson, which I think is a deployment problem. Yes. And then their starting defensive end is going to be Steven Weatherly or the ancient Everson Griffin. So they're not going to get a good rush. They run a pretty vanilla defense as it is. And their, their secondary is not good. Finally, there's a split. Analytics people think that Mike Zimmer sucks ass because he punts way too often in inopportune scenarios and he runs a very run-centric conservative offense. Meanwhile, a lot of gamblers love Mike Zimmer because he's got a great record against the spread. I think it's the second best record against the spread since he came into the league, maybe the best. However, I don't think having a good record against the spread has anything to do with his coaching ability. I think it has everything to do with the fact that they won a lot of games with Case Keenum as their starting quarterback and nobody expected that. And then they won a lot of games with Kirk Cousins as their starting quarterback. And as much as people kind of expected it, everybody loves hating Kirk Cousins. So I think it's more just he's gotten great production out of quarterbacks that are easily hateable. I don't think he's very good. I'm more on the analytics side. I don't think he's terrible, but I sure don't think he's good. And finally, their quarterback is nothing to write home about. It's Kirk Cousins. Are you excited about anything on this team? I am not. I mean, I I have him a a little bit higher than you, um, but I think it's pretty negligible. The team, yeah, they're just, there's nothing about them that says this is what's going to push them through into winning games. They have good wide receivers. Dalvin Cook's great. Um, The O-line should be much improved. But yeah, that defense, they're not going to be able to cover anyone. They'll lock down the middle of the field with those linebackers. They'll be solid in the run, but they're not going to get pass rush and they can't keep up with any. Yeah, the technique from old man Peterson running around will help. But once you're four seconds into the play, it's just speed at that point and they don't have it. Um, granted, those those weapons are really good. And that's probably why I'm a little bit higher than you. And that Adam Thielen, Justin Jefferson, and Dalvin Cook is a pretty elite trio of guys. And they've produced and had a decent offense the last few years with a worse offensive line and more inconsistency on the defensive side of the ball um, and some of the injuries and everything they've gone through. So they have an, an avenue to be good. But yeah, I mean, I'm kind of in the same boat with you that they're just not special in any way. But yeah, I, I think that what's happening here is just that Minnesota was one of those teams that had a really good roster and like was a quarterback away for three to five years. And then people just kind of didn't notice when the roster stopped being good and they became more than just a quarterback away. Similar thing happened to Denver after Peyton Manning left is everybody's just like, oh, Denver, yeah, great team. Like they don't have the quarterback figured out, but they'll still win eight, 10 games. And they didn't, they won five. And I, I think it's this the same thing happening all over again. Yeah, I could definitely see that. There, There's just nothing about them that I get excited about. After this season, there are going to be a, a lot of very big questions being asked in Minnesota. All right, so we can go to another one that is a favorite of mine to talk about when fading, which are the Pittsburgh Steelers. You spoke right to me when you ranked them all the way down at 27th in the league. I couldn't even put them that low, but I do appreciate you. I have them at 23rd in the league. Vegas has them at 14th in the league. And then ESPN has them at 15th. So if you don't mind, I'm going to take this one just because it's rare that I get to talk a little bit of trash about the Pittsburgh Steelers. It's even rarer when that trash talk is warranted and the Browns are better than them. So the Pittsburgh Steelers were a good team last year. Rather, they were a successful team that won a lot of games. I think that was a lot of luck. It was a lot of turnovers by their defense. And then the last gasps of Ben Roethlisberger and some of those players on the offensive line 
with what I will admit is a good diverse group of playmakers. However, that offensive line is substantially worse. There are reports coming out of Pittsburgh all the time that they're panicking more and more about who's going to play where. The Their right tackle from last year, they moved the left tackle this offseason, and it hasn't been working out. So now they're moving them back to right tackle. And this was, I think, this week, last week. We play meaningful football games in, in less than two weeks, and they're still figuring out what their offensive line is going to be. Um, and they're protecting ancient Ben Roethlisberger, who the Steelers were praying would retire, but he had him over the barrel and said, I get to do my farewell tour and make a ton of money. And so they have a, an old quarterback who doesn't have any arm strength anymore has been beat up the last few years and is behind an offensive line that is entirely new, or maybe not entirely new since that guy's back at right tackle. And then playmakers that are good, but nothing that is absolutely elite. And then you go to the defensive side of the ball where that front seven, I'm not going to lie, is elite and might be the best front seven grouping in the league because they can do everything. They pass rush and they, they can stop the run something fierce. They have speed, they have power. That front seven's great. However, you get to the DBs and they are old and slow. Uh, Joe Hayden is somehow still actually pretty effective, but he's getting up there and he's been slow for a few years, but that can only get worse. I'm expecting that drop off to happen eventually. Um, and even if it doesn't happen, he plays like he did last year. He's a decent corner. Then you have the highly touted Minka Fitzpatrick that both of us agree is overrated. I, I'm higher on him than you are. I think he's a good safety that puts himself in good positions, but is athletically limited. Uh, but beyond that, their DBs are horrible. Uh, Terrell Edmonds is still on the team somehow. And as far as I know, slotted to be the starter, which is horrible for them, if that's that, the case. That tells you everything you need to know. If Terrell Edmonds is starting in your secondary, you need to draft people to play in your secondary. Yeah. Uh, Cam Sutton as the second corner, I I mean, that's okay. It's but they're just, they're weak everywhere. You know, all the guys are okay, except Manko, who I would say is above average for his position group. Say he's top 10 around around that 10 number, but he's up there. But then everyone else is clearly below average for their position group. So if there's any time where the front seven doesn't get home, people are getting open. So if you have an offensive line or have quick throws, an offense that gets rid of the ball quickly, you're cooked. It's coupled with an offense that I think is going to be in complete disarray. They're going to be a bad team, and I am going to relish every second of it. The funny thing is that they're actually not that bad at all of the positions that don't matter as much. For instance, they've got Eric Ebron and Pat Fryermuth. That's good tight ends. We all know that they're just incredible at acquiring wide receivers. But then their entire offensive line is a goddamn mess, and then their quarterback is bad. You go to the defensive side of the ball, their defensive tackles are really good in Cameron Hayward and Stephen Tuitt, although Tuitt is going to be missing the first three weeks of the season at least. He's on IR. Um, but then their entire secondary is weak. And yeah, Minka Fitzpatrick is great for picking off a tipped ball every once in a while or picking up a fumble and then getting all the roses for that. But just as a coverage safety, he's fine. He's not good. He's not great. He's not bad, but he's fine. I agree with you on Joe Hayden. His agility was always lacking to begin with. And now at this advanced age, I don't know how he moves laterally ever. And Terrell Edmonds would be a bad coverage linebacker. So I don't understand how you utilize him as a safety. TJ Watt is incredible. That's awesome. Good for you. 
have fun rushing the passer after the ball is sailing over the heads of your terrible secondary. I think that their 11-0 run last year was ridiculously fraudulent, and I think that they're pretty squarely locked in to be the third best team in that division. I don't understand. Well, I'll rephrase that. I understand that people are going to look at their season from last year and go, they were 11-0 to start. They made the playoffs and hosted the Browns. They can't be bad. I have to at least make them average. And I say that's why you lose money betting on football games because they shouldn't have been 11-0. Do not let that static guide your thinking. Look at the players. Look at the film. Look at the coaching. I like Matt Canada as an offensive coordinator too, but he's not going to have enough time to do anything fun because his offensive line is horrifying. And I'm a Bears fan. I've seen bad offensive lines. Their center is a guy called J.C. Hassenhauer. I don't know who that is. They're starting Chikwuma Okorafor at left tackle, and that hasn't gone well. So they're putting him back at right tackle. And he wasn't very good there either, which means they're kicking Joe Haig over to left tackle. This is a guy who played tight end for the Buccaneers two years ago. In heavy sets, yes, he wasn't really catching passes, but like still, you don't want the gadget sixth or seventh offensive lineman as your starting left tackle. And then on the inside, they got Kevin Dodson, okay, and Tri Turner, who theoretically could and should be good, but never is. And I don't think that's changing now that he's older. Literally the entire, we spoke earlier about how an offensive line needs five at least solid pieces in order to be good. They might have five bad pieces. And they're going to have to play against the likes of Jadevian Clowney with Miles Garrett. They're going to have to play against the Ravens, who somehow always manage a rush, despite not having good rushers. And then don't look now, but Sam Hubbard and Trey Hendrickson, they're going to be white lightning down in Cincinnati. Those are good edges that are deceptively quick and work really hard. Real gym rats. Coaches, kids, you know. Coaches, sons. First one in, last one out type of guys. Great ball security. Quicker than fast. Yeah, you just love having them on your team. Real uh, lunch pay guys. <laughs> you win. I have no more. <laughs> um, yeah, I I agree with everything you said. I I wanted to touch on your comment about people overrating how good they were last year, especially with that hot start. And I wanted to talk about people always reference Mike Tomlin never having a losing season. And I've heard that one a lot this offseason. So I feel like a lot of people recognize the 11-0 is a little bit fluky, but people keep putting the Steelers high, which, I mean, we see with them being 14th and 15th in the in the rankings for Vegas and ESPN. They put them about league average and expect them to win nine-ish games. And I keep seeing people just go, well, Mike Tomlin's never gone under 500. He he won't let them lose more than uh, more than eight games. And I'm like, that is that, there's no reasoning to that. It's the exact same thing. Um, yeah, so what? The team's horrible. They had this is the worst Roethlisberger has ever been. Their O-line is probably the worst it's ever been. I mean, they had some they had some rough years there where in the early Ben years where Ben was getting beat up a good amount, but th- it's real bad right now. Back They've then, been- back then, Big Ben was a was a highway median. You couldn't knock him over if you ran into him with a motorcycle. He tried it himself. Now <laughs> he's a brittle old man. And the offensive line has to be worse because I can't imagine an offensive line has ever been worse than this. Yeah. And I just, there's, there's no overcoming that regardless of how lethal your defensive line is, especially when you play so many 
teams with those pass rush threats that you just talked about and are battling with them for your division, they're, they're going to get run around and beat up. And their only hope is to fully go into that quick game, which was somewhat successful last year and could be how they bring that team up a little bit. Cause I guess we could make the argument that they're really similar to Denver and Miami. Um, Because I think both of those teams have significantly better defenses. Yeah. And honestly, the biggest in the thing that carries those defenses is their secondary, where it's a weak point for Pittsburgh, but it's just because that front seven is so good that they just cause so many problems that you don't need your secondary to be that great. They are one of those teams that will be able to produce takeaways just because their pass rush is so good. Like takeaways are usually pretty random, but when you're getting that much pressure, crazy shit happens. So I'll, I'll grant them that. Yeah, but so, I mean, there's definitely the the avenue for them of if they, they keep producing takeaways at such a, a level similar to last year, their offense can operate on that really quick game and Najee opens up some level that overcomes the of- offensive line being as weak as it is. But I, I just don't see that as being realistic and think they're going to be a bottom 10 team. I actually love Najee Harris, but it doesn't matter. He's got nowhere to run. I can give you Bo Jackson in his prime, and if he's running directly into a defensive tackle, your best hope is for three yards. So what is Najee going to do? Nothing. There's nothing he can do. I think we've beaten the hell out of this dead horse. We got one more team left. It might be the most egregious. Yeah, well, first of all, I just wanted to, again, revisit that the Steelers are going to be a bad team. (laughs) And we should just relish in this for a little bit, just for me. He says with his Browns flag in the background. And the brown shirt I currently have on while drinking out of my Browns water bottle. (laughs) So into our final team on our fade list for this episode is the San Francisco 49ers. Now you have them significantly lower than anybody on this list, including myself. You have them as the 16th ranked team in the league. I have them as a ninth ranked team in the league. Vegas aggressive and has them as the sixth ranked team in the league. And then ESPN agrees with me and has them as the ninth best team. Okay. Kyle Shanahan's a really good coach, right? Yeah. Kyle Shanahan's awesome. And Kyle Shanahan is awesome because he runs a play action, wide zone, run based system similar to Kubiak and his father, right? Yes. You know who does those things as well? Arthur Smith. He's not as good at it, but he's good at it. I think we can agree he's nearly as good at it. And it's the same thing that they're doing. Yeah, he does a good job of it. Who's got a better quarterback, Jimmy Garoppolo or Matt Ryan? Matt Ryan. George Kittle and Kyle Pitts are both really good tight ends, right? Yeah, I'd say Kyle Pitts is uh, unproven, but I'll grant you, I think it's pretty safe to say he'll be great. The 49ers impress you at wide receiver with Brandon Ayuk. You've got Debo Samuel is going to be starting with Mohamed Sanu in the slot. It's a bit of a strange setup. I don't think it matters all that much because it's the Kyle Shanahan offense. You don't need you don't need studs. You just need guys that can do a little bit with the ball. I agree. And I think that the Falcons have the exact same setup with Calvin Ridley. He can do something with the ball. Alamade Zacchaeus is fine. And they have a better quarterback doing the distribution. So why should the 49ers be any better than the Falcons? At least on offense. The offensive line is a pretty big difference there because the 49ers have a good offensive line. I don't know if I would say that anymore. I love Trent Williams and Mike McGlinchey is solid. Alex Mack is old, but a good center. But Daniel Brunskill and Lakin Tomlinson are not good starting guards. 
I, I mean, they're, they're not good, but they're playable. And when you have the studs of Trent Williams, Mike McGlinchey on your corners with the very seasoned and still good Alex Mack. He sure, he certainly gonna, won't fuck you. They're going to, they're going to be able to cover up for a lot of that. And it will, it will let their run game, especially because Kyle Shanahan loves his run game. It'll let their run game open up and it'll make life a lot easier on their pass game. Whereas I don't think the Falcons will have their lines not going to be good and they're not going to be able to really run the ball very well and so they're going to become one dimensional so you will at least admit that they're very similar and i get the better quarterback with the falcons i i'll I'll admit that yeah you get the better quarterback and they're they're at least somewhat similar okay now why why is the 49ers defense going to be good despite not having a secondary member to speak of yeah, they're they're going with the Steelers method a little bit um, in that your secondary doesn't matter if you can generate pressure and have generally a good front seven. Um, now, their front seven is not as good as the Steelers, but they have some good talent there. I mean, you have, you know, the big name in Nick Bosa, who's probably a little overrated, but he's a top tier pass rusher. He's good. You have Eric Armstead, who, you know, they traded the wrong guy in terms of interior DL when they got rid of DeForest Buckner, but Eric Armstead's a good player. They've kicked him outside. Have they really? They're starting him at left defensive end over D Ford. I just saw that. Well, that doesn't bode well for D Ford, but I guess it actually, if you put D Ford in that third rusher where you're just having him like sprint off the edge, that's actually a pretty good role for him. They're probably going to kick Armstead inside on third down. Yeah. Um, But I mean, Armstead just plays big end now. That could be effective. I mean, I like Javon Kinlaw a lot. I like him. And then you go to Dre Greenlaw and Fred Warner. Great. Especially Fred Warner. Fred Warner is incredible. And so they can cover really well in the middle of the field with their linebackers. And they're going to create pressure and play the run pretty well. So, I mean, they're, I like Jason Brett. If he stays healthy, I, I'm a fan of his. But, yeah, it's really rough in the, uh, in the secondary. I love Jason Verrett, but if he could just play a full season once, that would be a great accomplishment for him, and I don't think he'll ever do it. Yeah, I mean. I, I expect to really... hurt within a month. <laughs> yeah, guys don't tend to get more durable the older they get. So that definitely you... could be it could be an issue there. And then with Especially... Jaquiski, Tart, and Jimmy Ward, you've got a really redundant safety core of just yeah. small dudes who hit hard and cover okay. Yeah, and I mean, say what you will about Sala as a head coach. You, you don't like him, but he was a good D coordinator. He certainly didn't mess it up. Um, so they'll they'll feel that, but I think their defense is just a, a different animal from Atlanta, whereas Atlanta's good in positions that don't really matter. The the 49ers are better and deeper at positions that do. Um, yeah, they're weaker at corner, but I'm still waiting to see the Falcons corners actually do it instead of just be good prospects. That is a little bit of a projection. I'll give you that. Honestly, comparing and contrasting the Falcons and the 49ers will go a long way in telling us a lot about a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, because you do have you have the Falcons at 12 and the 49ers at 16. So you have the Falcons is better. I do. And I, I stand by that because I'm willing to bet on the projection that I made on those cornerbacks in Atlanta. I liked all of them coming out of school. I'm willing to bet on Dean Pease putting together a 
good defense and I'm willing to bet on a defense with a bad secondary in a really strong passing division having a really rough time because we're not talking about the Rams today but we're both ridiculous we're both really high I think they're third for both of us or maybe fourth the Rams are good and they're gonna sling that ball around the field like I don't know how the 49ers can match up with the Rams defensively which one of these corners is gonna run with Deshaun Jackson which one of these corners is gonna try to lock up Cooper Cup in the slot and then oh yeah you've got Robert Woods who will just find a way open I mean, in fairness, Deshaun Jackson will probably play less games than Jason Barrett will, but I understand what you're saying. They 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 will beat up on them in the coverage game. Let, let's say hypothetically Deshaun Jackson goes down tomorrow. Tutu Atwell is really fast. Yeah, I agree with you. That guy can fly. Like, he's, he's tiny, cute. but it doesn't matter. Right. Um, yeah, no, I mean, they're gonna they're definitely in a really hard division and they're gonna struggle with a lot of the same things that the Cardinals do and that their offense is gonna produce but their defense is going to be weak. Um, the Cardinals defense is going to be much weaker, but it's going to be what holds them back. Um, granted, I think San Fran will largely be fine because much like Pittsburgh, they've got an established defense that kind of runs itself at this point or to a certain extent. Um, and they have talented, important positions that they'll, you know, they're going to give up big plays and they're going to get beat up a little bit in the air, but they're going to be able to create so much pressure and chaos up front that I think it'll cover a lot of those issues. I've also heard that D'Amico Ryans, who's now their defensive coordinator, which is crazy because he was playing like just a few years ago. Right. That was a quick turnaround. Good for him. He's he's risen the ranks, apparently, all the way from quality control to D.C., and apparently he's like a genius. So that could really blow up my projection. But I think the 49ers will be a fine team. I don't know what if I have a great angle for betting against them. Now, according to this Vegas ranking, I might get the Rams favored against the 49ers by like three. And I might get the 49ers pick them against the Rams in San Fran, in which case I'm going to be betting on those games. Yeah, me as well. And honestly, I might have San Fran even a little higher than they should be, or at least you're making me doubt myself a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're going to be, they're going to be a good team. I think they'll kind of be in that same like Colts range of they're going to be good. Their defense will be solid, but have its weak points. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be betting on the 49ers really. It'll just be, yeah, betting against <laughs> when we get Rams games. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I can't, I can't parse out Seahawks versus 49ers. I can't handicap that right now. Oh God, no. Adding a couple injuries and some tendencies and maybe, but right now those teams are so close. And then Arizona and San Francisco, I can see those going either way as well. I definitely tend towards San Fran. I do too. Just, just because one, I think they win the coach battle. Um, they win the consistency game in that you're they're nowhere near as volatile. Now factor in the fact that the 49ers are going to be laying like five or six. Yeah. And the the Niners defense is they're going to eat up that line. And those linebackers would be able to tackle receivers before they can get like any yak. Mm -hmm. And those linebackers are actually really well suited to cover those receivers. Exactly. The ones they play. All right. That was a very lengthy gas or fade segment. But you know what? We had to get the season started off somehow. I think we've identified some teams we want to bet on. Have I convinced you on New Orleans? Have you come over to my side on this one? That's the one I'm going to die on. Well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not much, much different from you. I only have them, what, two spots lower than you do. Um, I mean, I've already bet on them. So you've convinced me to a certain point because (laughs) if I never talked to you, I'd probably have them lower because I do agree that 
that Sean Payton's going to have a big difference on Jameis. And I have to think the LASIK's going to do something. Right? So. It, like, it sounds kind of square, but like, just be a human for a second. The man couldn't see. Now he can see better. Exactly. So that's where I think they're going to do well. Yeah, they lost a little bit on defense, but I think they'll recover well from it. And so they're going to be a pretty similar team to what they were last year, which was, you know, inside the top 10 and just dependent on injuries is how far they go. So should we we finish off this podcast by telling our listeners about our modifications to this bet we made last podcast? Yeah, I mean, we can jump in. I know you had your bet kicked back because there is a a little bit of weather problems down in Louisiana and the game got moved to sunny Jacksonville. Yeah, so it's pretty standard practice for books to cancel any bet on any game that either changes location or the date that it is being played on. So if you already made a bet on New Orleans before the hurricane happened, check your bookmaker check to make sure what their policies are. Your bet may have been refunded or it may be refunded later. It also still might be active. Either way, the line is moved to Saints plus 4.5, otherwise known as Green Bay minus 4.5. Uh, and this is on a neutral field instead of being at home for New Orleans. And I actually like this bet better than I liked it before it got moved out of New Orleans. Joe, why do you like this bet better? with New Orleans out of the dome and no crazy Saints fans in that locked-in space pumping in 150 decibels. I'm so glad you asked, Alex, because I think I've come up with a very sharp angle on this game. So historically, home field advantage has always been worth about three points, and the Saints have always had a remarkably good home field advantage for the last five, ten years during the Sean Payton, Drew Brees era. In recent years, home field advantage has diminished a little bit. Instead of being three points, it's about two and a half or two whatever, this is negligible. The real angle I see is that I think the Saints home field advantage of years past with Breeze wasn't a home field advantage at all. I think it was just an away field disadvantage because Breeze had a very weak arm. And when he went outside, it became much more of a problem. Breeze was notoriously bad outdoors, especially in weather. And when he's at home in the dome, that's never a problem. So I don't think that their home field advantage, which was typically three and a half or four points, depending on who you ask, I don't think that it was an advantage at all. I think it was simply the lack of a disadvantage. And now that Jameis Winston's the quarterback, and we all know he's got plenty of arm, I think that disadvantage is gone. So I think that the Saints' home field advantage is less substantial, which means that when they move to the neutral field, I think they should be getting one extra point off of three. So the the line moved from three to four and a half. Moving from three to three and a half is worth about a full point because it's so important. So effectively, this line has moved two full points or two and a half full points, depending on which line you get. I think that it should have moved one. I think we're getting an extra point of value because home field advantage is being overestimated in the part of the Saints. And I still think that you're going to get plenty of Saints fans there in Jacksonville, which is relatively close. So Green Bay still will have to deal with some adversity and that humid Jacksonville heat on top of the fact that I think that the Saints are probably just a better football team. Yeah, I really like what uh, what you just said about the away field disadvantage because that's a that's an interesting idea that I don't think I've ever heard mentioned before. In that that makes a lot of sense. I think maybe it's a little blown out because those fans in the dome do make a huge difference. Uh, the the is you know last year I think we saw a big difference of how important it was with no fans and no noise for away teams. And so when you get the opposite of you get inside with New Orleans fans going wild, it really impacts the other team. But yeah, now that you have Jameis and the 
the weather doesn't affect how you play all that much, it, it, it won't factor in uh, to the same level that it used to. It could be, and I agree that we're getting a little bit of extra value here, just why we've bet on it. Yeah, so I threw a unit on the money line at plus 175 and a unit on the spread at plus 4.5, both on New Orleans. Comes out to about a two-unit two unit to win 2.5-unit bet in total. Very nice. I've uh, I've just gone in a little bit, and I have two units on the spread. I'll probably put a little bit on the money line later, but I'm I'm still a little hesitant on New Orleans, so I don't want to start throwing on them to win just yet. The way I see it, if I'm getting plus 175 on a team that I legitimately think is better, I would kick my own ass if I didn't take it. It's one of those bets where if I lose, I'm going to say whatever. It would it would have been worth the payoff, and if I win, you guys aren't going to hear the end of it. <laughs> another one to uh put in the files and uh, throw in everyone's face uh, you better bet your ass that i'll be coming after that ezekiel yoder fellow on twitter after that one <laughs> well what i really want to see happen for that guy is andy dalton come out and win like 12 games if andy dalton wins 12 games i think that guy will very seriously harm himself and i'm not sure that that'll be as fun as watching him tweet at me 35 times a day <laughs> You know, you are doing a public service and helping out a fellow fellow human being. <laughs> I'm proud of you. I'm really a saint is what it boils down to. Mm -hmm. Hey, you just come over to Catholicism and we'll have you shooting up that ladder real quick. <laughs> All right. I think we've gone long enough. Should we call it? I think so. I think we can uh, we can wrap this one up after however many hours we've done. All right. Well, in our final pre-regular season edition, we would like to thank you for betting on football games. Asta. <laughs>